Three, two, one. Let's go! I'm the host of the PV Podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer. Let's go read, man. That was good. It was charged up. That was a charged up three, two, one. I like those kinds of three, two, ones. And this show, uh, it represents that. It came from the show we just did, right? There's a lot of passion in this. There was a lot of information, a lot of just things that I learned along the way. But first thing I want to do is pass it over to you. Give us a quick little elevator pitch of who you are, and we're going to get into some stay positive quotes. Yeah. Um, I'm Reed Goodman, um, father of two. Uh, married, run a cattle company, um, and uh, have a downhole tool company and a small uh, blossoming operating company. Um, and so um, I'm a student, is what I am. I've been a student today in this episode. Oh man, heck yeah! Well, you've been uh, you've been a student and a scholar, man. I think you have a lot of wisdom in you. You got a lot of uh, a lot of things to share lot of good knowledge I think to share you've you've earned it through your story I, that's what I got from that I mean just the fact that you've you've been able to work with downhole tools as much as you have and gas lift and you know being out in that in that and listening to reservoirs you've learned so much about what what really is going on out there boots on the ground stuff yeah. not just theoretic like theoretical stuff you've you've done it well, the more I do, the <laughs> more questions I have. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, it never ends. Yeah, and, and uh, then I, I, one of the good takeaways from the show was, you know, you kind of you you pinpointed a pro, not a problem, but something that certainly has your curiosity. And it's well, if you if you don't really know where the oil is coming from, then you're producing these wells kind of blind, and you're just kind of you're not. You're listening, which is good. You need to listen to the reservoirs. You need to listen to nature. That's one of the first experiences of a geologist. But if you don't have a model right. to, to plug it into and to, to how can I maybe optimize this part of the system that you're connected to, you'll ne you might not ever figure it out, and you can make some major mistakes along the way. And so you're, you really have a curiosity there that you want to try to figure that out. You, want, you not only want to listen, but you really want to learn uh, from the reservoir and that's that's badass man you're talking about literally talking to nature le yeah. learning the language of the earth yeah how can we get any better if we don't know what's going on and why it's happening so that's right uh, that's so exactly gotta right. figure out why man i like it <laughs> and you're a positive guy you're a positive guy you got positive vibes so this is where we're going to bring in encouraging quotes and messages to fuel your life with positive energy all right staying positive by john gordon and daniel decker what, uh, just off the top of your head, staying positive, what is that? What, what's that do for you? Um, it keeps me energized, excited to go do things. So I think negative is a feedback loop. And mm. so me intentionally being positive gets rid of any of that negative feedback loop I'm in. Mm. And then, uh, you know, it being intentional about that when you're around other people too, I feel like a lot of times pulls them out of whatever hole they might be in. So Big you end time. up being a blessing to all the people around you. Man, just being a positive reflection. How about that? Okay, tell me when to stop. Let's see what it says. Stop. Bang. Here we go. Oh, man, here we go. <laughs> this one. Look at this. Look at this. This is random. All right. Be faithful where you are. We all want to be on the big stage, appear on the big TV show, work on the big account, make the big sale or get the big job. But big opportunities and responsibilities come from doing the small things with a dose of passion, love, purpose, and excellence. Hmm. What do you think about that, man? I love it. 
That's good. That's good. It's uh, it's hard. Yeah. You'll hear about my ADHD a little bit here and, and always on to the next one. Right. The next bigger and the next best. And it's like that's right. stick in it and get it done. Yeah. I like this. Be faithful where you are. Yeah. Right. What's the term? The term. What's your terminology or what's your definition of faithful? Faithful? Yeah. In the sense oh. of where you are right now, being faithful to where you are right now. Yeah, it means uh, uh, lean in and and dot the I's and cross the T's. And um, like you said, don't let the next big shiny thing get you distracted. Yep. Faithful means you got to get it across the finish line and and don't let that, that new opportunity pull you away. Yeah. You know, yeah. you set on your course for a reason. Hey, here we go. Yeah, no, this, <laughs> welcome to the PBE podcast, man. This is the conception segment, but uh, we can start it off with any questions you got. Uh, but right now, dude, I'm, I'm heading to West Texas uh, with uh, Elise on the Sensor Basin platform, Clear Fork, um, and uh, did the first work over and, and really got my ass kicked by it. Learned a lot being in West Texas. Uh, and being in an unfamiliar area, right? Unfamiliar contacts. I'm, I'm just completely gunslinging the thing mm-hmm. and, uh, and learned a lot from doing that. And, and so we're going back and, and we're going to just try to get everything optimized, right? Get everything the way it should be. A lot of twists and turns getting there and, you know, can't do it all. I'm not going to spend a million dollars, you know, revamping an old lease. There's economic limits and, and we're... We kind of better understand those after the first workover, right? Yeah. So kind of know what you're working with on a daily volume perspective. And, and so, yeah, the rig's going out uh, Monday. Cool. Very cool. Um, how, how deep is that stuff out there? 3,500 feet. 600 feet of gross pay, probably 150 net, something like that, between the three zones and the clear fork. Moves like a river. Like uh, even the calcium calcium carbonate scale that came out of the well and came out of the, you know, is down for like two years, supposedly. And the two and three eighths tubing came out like four inch, man. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and you can see uh, ripples. You can see literally like fluid flow, sedimentary geology in the calcium carbonate yeah. down at the purse. Cool. So, I mean, that reservoir is really moving. Yeah. So it's pretty cool to be a part of that. Yeah, and so y'all are just looking to bring anything that's left in that field out, or are y'all doing some new stimulation? And- oh, man, always bringing new. Always bringing a completely new perspective on where the oil's even coming from, and, and then obviously leading down the road to people in the network that have different tried and true techniques mm-hmm. uh, and kind of how you're how are you addressing the chemical problems, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yeah, we're, we're investing in all kinds of new tech and, and new ideas approaching this thing. So it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, cool. sir. Well, you said you had some, uh, some wells down there in Somerset. Um, and you know, we got started with some wells, um, over here in Lavernia, oh, real okay. similar, uh, between 700 and a thousand foot deep. And I looked at a bunch of wells, you know, Somerset, Bigfoot, uh, divine down in that area. Yeah. Um, and uh, 
you know, I liked them because they were shallow and easy, right? And yeah, that's I, I right. Didn't wanna, I didn't want to get into something, you know, way over my head. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a bunch of money to throw at something, oh, man. you so know. That's, yeah. Uh, and so those seemed uh, like the most reasonable choice. And so uh, we've been operating those, um, let's see, February of 21 is when I, when I first got a hold is of them. Is that right? I started that, uh, I started that company exactly when I started yeah I started that company in fall of 19 and it took me until February of 21 to really find Dude, what I wanted you kidding me <laughs> if you looked at my articles of incorporation yeah I actually started it in the fall like August or something like okay. that so not quite the fall but definitely the you know later part of 2019 mm -hmm. didn't get the first lease and and really start doing anything until February of 2021 that's crazy yeah February I think it was February 10th of 21 we uh we went down and signed and you know, wrote our $10 check for consideration. There uh, you go. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, you know, my dad is, uh, is a small partner in that. It's just me and my dad. And so right he's, on. you know, I grew up, uh, in the oil field. My mom's side of the family has a compression company. They're on their, they're on the third compression company right now. Oh, a compression uh, company, like energy, gas compressor. Yeah. Yeah. Energy gas compression is the current one that, uh, uncle Bart runs. So your mom helped start that? So it's my mom's side of the family. So my grandpa. Okay. Um, on your mom's side. On my mom's side. Okay. What's uh, his name? Verlin. Verlin Troutwine. And <laughs> Say it again. Verlin Troutwine. What the? How do you spell the last name? Troutwine? T-R-A-U-T-W-E-I-N. No kidding. And, uh, and Verlin. Did he have a mustache like you? You know, not, <laughs> not that I knew of. But, um, but he, uh, he started a company out of Victoria. Um, Okay. In in '84, called um, RCI Rental Compressors Incorporated. Rentals. Com Rental Compressors, Compressors Incorporated. Incorporated. And uh, you know they were all small horsepower compression, 500 horsepower and less. What um, were the operators doing with these compressors? What was the idea? What, what? Yeah. Why? Why was that? Why was that such a good business back then? Uh, well, wellhead compression. So. Um, you know, they drill a well, um, they might be able to find a pipeline to put it into, but mm. say that pipeline operates at 600 PSI and the wellhead pressure on this 100. well is 100, 150. How are we ever going to get it down the line? Got to compress it. You got to compress it. Son of a gun. So that's kind of the, the start, right? Um, but there, you know, there's a lot of other op applications and what that actually led into, um, you know, I grew up monkeying around on compressors um, and my dad's side, um, they're all petroleum engineers from A&M and oh, some Aggies too. dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. PEs from Aggie. And, uh, dad went to Sam Houston and got, um, a degree in, in, uh, manufacturing efficiency or, you know, something along those lines, right industrial on. manufacturing. And, uh, he, he tried three times to get away from Baker. He worked for Brown and got bought out by Baker. He worked for Atlas Oil Tools and got bought out by Baker. And then wow. he worked for Elder Oil Tools and got bought out by Baker. No so kidding. Really, in the end, you know, it's just a it's just a thirty something year career of working for Baker is where it always yeah. ended up. I mean, up. was he buying stock in Baker the whole time? Well, I hope so. He should have been, <laughs> you know. And um, so, Dad, you know, I, I grew up with Dad doing that and going to golf tournaments and skeet shoots. Really? Um, so you're a pretty good golfer. No, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. <laughs> I got yeah, I got yeah, on the side yeah. for that. We we probably can go down a lot of rabbit holes today. Right on. Um, but so you know, I had it on both sides of the family, um, and I knew we we really like agriculture. Um, I really like cattle and horses and that kind of stuff. Right and on. so I knew if I 
if I went to college for um, ag, I'd be running somebody else's ranch for the rest of my life. Wow. If I went to college for petroleum or mechanical engineering, something like that, I'd be able to, to, you know, possibly own the ranch and have, you know, hire somebody to come run it for me, you know, or help me run it and whatnot. So that was kind of my dream. Um, Man, you thought of that in high school, huh? <laughs> yeah. Is that right? You yeah. And who was your mentor on that? Obviously, your dad was inspiring to you to think yeah, that I way. Just, I just didn't see, you know, my oldest brother um, graduated from our local high school. Um, we were living up in Kerrville at the time and uh, from Ingram. And, you know, he didn't do well in college, um, but he, you know, he he trains horses for a living. He still does. Trades horses? Trains. Oh, he trains? Breaks and trains. Oh, okay. And, um, for like uh, just ranching or for racing? For ranching. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Most, it, what he really likes is reining horses. What are those? Um, which is a, uh, it's, a, it's a discipline of Western horsemanship. And uh, the, you know, the high level uh, guiding principle is they, they say uh, the horse is willingly guided. So the horse is eager to do what you want it to do, nice. but you're guiding the horse, right? So yeah. it's small cues, it's very in touch. Um, right the horse is round and really driving through. And so what they end up doing is they train all these maneuvers and then um, you know, at like a show or whatnot, um, you have a pattern, you come into the ring and maybe you know, four circles to the, to the left and four circles to the right, then you lope out left and then you lope to the right. Huh. And, what do you, you do all this for? It's uh, it's a show of um, the horses, um, well, athleticism for one, uh, two the the training and the mental aspect, right? So like, there's a there's thousands of horses that have such great pedigrees, huh. but not every horse has the brain, right? Has the mindset to really take that training and and run with it and do something with it, right? Wow. So you know some of them, like you. I mean, I guess in people, you know, you could have a, you're, just because your parents have done well and built a business and made a million doesn't mean that That's their right. son's brain is going to do the same thing. Right. And so you have to showcase that not only do they have the pedigree or whatnot, and that's kind of like an insurance policy. You know, they're more likely to do well coming from, from better bloodlines. Right, genetics. But you really want to show um, um, the athleticism and then, you know, the mental component of, of these animals. And so they're, they're performance athletes, right? Wow. Um, like right on. Have you heard of equine hemp? I haven't. Oh man. Yeah. You got to check this out. These guys are, uh, ah, I'm, I'm going to butch this all, butcher this all up, but I think you'll be super interested. They're using, you know, THC and CBD mm -hmm. in the hay, right. And, and they're mixing it into the food. And they're, they're bringing horses back from like straight up going to like die horses are coming back and they're strong again. They're running again. Like it's some amazing huh. turnaround, uh, feeding them, uh, equine hemp. Yeah. And they, yeah. they just got a major sponsor. I think it was like the, what do you guys call it? It's not the PGA, but that equivalent, uh, like what's the big rodeo? Like, yeah, the uh, quarter horse, uh, AQHA American no, quarter horse. Association. What's the other one? What's the bigger one? The uh, the one that comes to Houston and uh, so there's the NFR, um, you know, for the ropers. Um, yep. Let's see. Could there's I mean there's one. there's I dozens could, of different uh, horse associations. Could be you know, that one. A, could be that one. There's ASHA, which is what we spend a lot of time with, the American Stock Horse Association. Huh. Uh, so that's all about stockmanship, you know, and and. Whatnot. I'll send you the, the information I have on it. It's really interesting, really cool stuff. And uh, why I got kind of involved with it was. You know, finding the right soils to grow a crop mm -hmm. and something as specific as hemp, 
right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, marijuana, it carries some strange metals. And if you okay. eat those metals, you're not going to get the the good benefits of interesting. What, like mom. grapes, it carries the climate and the soil with it, kind of. Ah, you know, like wine, right? Like wine. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Growing hemp's kind of like growing wine. Son That's... of a gun. <laughs> well, so it got real interesting, and we're still obviously, hopefully, you know, putting this project together. But what we're trying to do is kind of target soil chemistries across America that that could have low element, low amounts of the arsenic and this stuff that the the weed pulls into itself. You don't want it in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they're really focused on, you know, how can we develop this product mm-hmm. and scale it up, but you can't go anywhere. You can grow it anywhere, but you're not going to grow high quality, like healthy mm-hmm. weed, right? You can still probably even sell it that way, which is scary <laughs> to think about. But like these guys get it and they've done a lot of chemistry. And so it was a really cool really cool thing and and you you talking about that just reminded me of the results the before and after and these guys the stories you know i was on the calls with them and listening to them tell these stories to people who are interested in investing and Mm -hmm. taking this product to kind of a a scale more scalable uh business so it was yeah i think you would find it pretty fascinating this this stuff yeah i'll have to check into that right i have a i have a cousin up in lubbock and they've they've grown cotton and corn and sorghum for years and years and really? years and uh, just a couple of years ago they were talking about you know hey this new hemp market like what does this really look like oh man on a large scale for us and so dude, it'll be interesting be, to see uh-huh you know what happens but they might not have the right soil who knows you never know you got to look at it yeah. i'll be interested if they've ever done a full elemental you know icpms analysis on their soil yeah what elements and what elevated elements specifically mm-hmm. across that board you know there's just 60 70 elements it'll come back and say that you have mm-hmm. if if it doesn't have these elevated amounts of these metals that they don't want in their hemp then it bang that could be a total place to to go with it yeah but you just don't know or maybe they do and we should look at that data. Yeah. We should look at the chemistry, man. <laughs> and there's an opportunity just like that. <laughs> born. So, born again. Yeah. Um, yeah, we got down a, a rabbit hole there. Um, so <laughs> I, I was introduced to oil and gas, you know, young. And then and then in college, I tried to go for mechanical engineering down in uh, Corpus, A&M Corpus Christi. Okay. Um, and uh, Energy Gas Compression has their shop down there. So I worked full time at the compressor company. Right on. And um, really all that did was, was fund my master's degree in, right on. in uh, duck hunting and fly fishing. Well, hey, that's a hell of an investment, <laughs> man. That's a hell of an investment right so, there. So you learned something. You built a network professionally through the college degree, right? And well, I didn't finish my college degree. Okay, but you were there. You I were only doing finished school. the degree in duck hunting and fly fishing. And I tell you what, <laughs> I can put you on some ducks and yeah. I, I can catch some redfish. So... Um, there but but I learned after after two and a half years there that you know academia wasn't at the time the place for me. I didn't I didn't want it. Uh, enough. What was the, I wasn't uh, hungry enough. What were the what were the the results in the classes like as far as like learning and getting a a grade from a professor? Were you was was it easy for you or was it re- pretty hard? Yeah. So grades have always been super easy for me. Um, okay. You so, just kind of get it. Like I said, my my oldest brother went to our local high school. My middle brother um, was bullied pretty hard in sixth and seventh grade and ended up going to a boarding school in Austin called St. Stephen's. 
Wow. Which is a, you know, has been a top 50 boarding school for 25 years running in the United States. Wow. Um, wow. And I, I think right now they're, they're probably top 15 um, academics wise. And so he went there and he talked about how he had so much fun and everything. And my folks said, you know, my mom's been an educator for, I guess now going on 40 years, um, but uh, 30 years at the time. And she said, you know, if, if y'all are interested in education, we'll always find a way to pay for it. Right. And so um, they said, if you want to go, you apply, you write the essay, you get in, we'll send you to school with him in Austin. And so my middle brother is like, he's a brainiac. Is that he right? Just, you know, it's, his brain works on a, uh, just a different level. Is that right? It's like you're, you're having a conversation like with him and he's also like, you know, <laughs> you know, drilling out this whole plan over here at the same time. And it just, um, Isn't that crazy. And he's gotten to where he doesn't say a whole lot but you can see in his eyes, like he's thinking all these things and he's working at all these scenarios. And it's like, but he's just kind of sitting there quiet. And sometimes I'm like, Robin, like open up your brain to me. Like, what are you thinking right now? He's like, well, I hadn't got there yet. (laughs) He's like, I hadn't got to a point where I need to share something with you because I'm running out all these (laughs) possibilities. Anyway, so he's a brainiac and he naturally got in and uh, he told me, you know, about how great it was and and, how much he loved being there and everything. And I said, you know, and, and being close to my brothers and my family, um, said, well, I'd, I'd like to go. So I applied, got in, uh, went to St. Stephen's as a boarding student for five years um, huh. in Austin. And, um, you know, the, the, the concepts and the, um, the knowledge has never been the issue. It's, it's always been a drive issue. Mm. Um, and my mom being an educator for so long, you know, she believes in ADD and ADHD, but she doesn't believe in you know, heavy medication for sure. those things as you're young. And so her deal was like, look, Reed, you're, if you have this, we're not going to get a diagnosis for you right now because we don't want you to have a label and then grow out of it, but you have to carry that for forever. Huh. Um, and we don't really know what, you know, Ritalin and Adderall and these kind of things are going to do to your brain long-term if you start right. taking them at 12 and 13 years old. That's right. And uh, so her big deal was like, look, you, this is part of who you are. If you're going to be successful in life, you've got to figure out how to cope with it. I fuck, I love it, man. And I love your mom right now. You know, your story. <laughs> she's awesome. freaking awesome. She's a little bit of a hippie. Perfect. Uh, you we'll know, get along so well. I love her. So, um, she, you know, it's like you have to figure out your path and, and right. how you're going to make it happen That's in the right. world. That's right. And, um, and so, um, you know, I was never on any kind of ADD medication or anything like that, but I am textbook <laughs> ADD. Right, we might have already established that for the audience here. You know, like I can't. I am textbook. So <laughs> it was a it was a drive issue, and um, it was a drive. And I issue. could get up and make it to work at seven a.m. Right, I could I could duck hunt that evening, fly fish till midnight, go to the country bar and, and dance and drink whiskey till two a.m. Go to sleep and make it to work at seven a.m. Yeah, and go pull that paycheck at the compressor company. Yep, I couldn't make it to a ten a.m. class. I didn't have the heart for it, which is interesting because I have a heart for learning. I want to learn so bad, but, but just I don't not want to sitting sit in, in that a chair. class. Yeah, and, and it's all the and maybe this is like the rebellious side of me, which you know. Sure. Um, I just don't want to do the like. I don't know, can we cuss on? I don't want to do the mundane bullshit mm-hmm. that they require you to do. Mm-hmm. Which, as I've gotten older, I've learned that you just kind of have to do that sometimes. Yeah. My maturity of, has told me that that's right. You got to sit down and do it and and I'm seeing in the professional world now 
like a lot of times that degree isn't about what you learned getting that degree. It's that you had the heart and the spirit and the time to sit down and That's get right. through it and do what was required of you. That's it. It's all that represents on the, on the resume, certainly with big position stuff, you know, mm -hmm. like if you get a degree and you're like, I want to go work for shell. They look at that and then they mix it with who they know, what professors they know, right? But the first thing they look at is what were you able to commit to getting done, you know? Yep. And, uh, and that's what it represents. You're absolutely right. And then when you build network, you know, you build this network of people that you end up staying, you'll stay in connected to some of them forever, you mm -hmm. know? And that's, and that's really important because that's your sounding board, you know? You guys been through things together you're getting you have history with that person and they're rooting for you and you're telling them what projects you're doing they're doing yeah it's it's a great way to just kind of get to that level of people that are just ready to be professionals ready to do something you know and and we don't we none of us had kids at the time that whole yeah. thing right and <laughs> that right. and then you do and it's like right on man you know you got your your crew, your wolf pack, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I, I love that about school, but I was the same way, dude, 100% the same way. I could not sit down in a classroom and, uh, and just do like the obvious stuff. Like, okay, like we, we get it. Why are we like, there's something else to do. Yeah, why do I have to else. show all this work? Like I've already got the answer. Quit wasting my time here. That's right. You know? Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, but I loved uh, the interaction at recess and lunch. You know what I mean? Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> PE was I awesome. A, for as little time as I spent in class, I spent a lot of time on campus. Ah. You know, hanging out with folks. And, yeah. And, right know. on. See, it's the, the problem is the system's not like agile enough to adapt to that. Mm -hmm. You've got to, we have a cookie cutter system that's designed by engineers and very linear thinker people to mm -hmm. try to get the perfect curve built in society or in economics or whatever, right? It's all mathematically like most predictable outcome we can find. Right. So you're riding that train and the schools are, are handcuffed to the, to the system. The system doesn't allow them to say, Hey, I feel like 90% of our students may be on more of like the ADHD side of the spectrum. We should have the option to not do the structured in class style design of what they have yeah there should be another design that's like hey you're you put put everything outside for the day or you know some design yeah. that helps with that there's a great study one of my mentors is monty swan he's guys i'm incredible geologist and just a, a just a thinker and uh and he, he he was aware of a study that they took the kids out of class and all the troublemakers became great at getting the work done and mm -hmm. the ones that were getting the work done in in the the sheltered environment that closed enclosed environment it's turned into the bad kids you know <laughs> what i mean like all of a sudden they couldn't concentrate isn't that funny <laughs> that is so i love the way your mom put that though man that's exactly right you got to understand that that's who you are you mm -hmm. got to understand that that's it doesn't feel normal and you're being you know yelled at by the teacher because you're a distraction and it's mm -hmm. not good but that's you, that you just understand that's who you well, are. Well, then, so my wife calls me Mr. 80%, right? And like, I've got a hundred <laughs> projects at the house started that are 80% done. And I can't follow through and, and get them done. But like you just said, learning that, that what you're good at, you can then at some point as you mature, figure out how to put something in place yep. to counteract what you're not good at. Yep. And so like, I'm good at deli, I'm good at, I'm good at dreaming 
and starting to get into the weeds and just get far enough in the weeds where I think I understand something. Yep. And then I'm like, you know what? I got to call somebody on this because I really don't. <laughs> yeah, man. Like I, I, st- I, I get far enough in that I'm like, okay, like there's got to be an expert for this because yep. I am making some wild assumptions here <laughs> that I, I know nothing about. Um, but you learn how to put those safeguards in place. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's good, man. Yeah, you're a visionary. You know, they talk about in business, you got to have the, you got to have the, the visionary, the manager, and the technician. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And if you run your own business, you have to force yourself into being all, all, <laughs> all three. three. You have to. Oh, it's tough. Oh, dude, that's how you learn, <laughs> especially when you put up your own money. Yeah, uh, you really learn which which one you are and which one you need to work on and where yeah. you need to find help. Um, but yeah. dude, that's it, man. You got you. You're a visionary. You know, that's, that's, that's a great role to be. That's yeah. a, that's arguably the most important role for any business is to have a vision. Yeah. You've got to have someone who can see that. And that's you, man. Well, maybe we'll see. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I got a long way to go, um, on, on all these projects. Right. <laughs> and so, so rocket back, dude, you get your degrees or no, you, you get through school, you know how to definitely shoot some duck and fish yeah so i uh i was you know i was working at the compression company and i decided that i didn't want to uh well i decided i definitely didn't want to be a compression mechanic the rest of my life okay you know making you know in in 2012 i think they were making 30 35 dollars an hour i don't know what they make now you know but i was like you know if i'm gonna own a ranch that's not gonna be enough that's not gonna cut it um and you know it's and i don't mind hard work right but it's it's hot and it's dirty and it's nasty yeah. and it's on somebody else's schedule. Yeah. And um, so I decided I didn't want to do that. Um, made up a little resume, um, you know, which was pretty short at the time, you know. Um, <laughs> and and I hit the streets. Um, and actually, the you know this, I think, I think this next section was kind of a well, all of my career I feel like is a series of divine appointments that I've walked into. Ah. Um, and so the first place I walked into was Lufkin ILS, Lufkin International Lift Systems. Dude, like the Lufkin? Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Uh-huh. And uh, so they had a facility there in Victoria. Um, it was, you know, kind of on the commercial side of town. And so I was like, well, shoot, pull in here. These all look like Oldfield things. I know I know a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I pulled in, and, and uh, the guy's name was Paul Atkins. And um, I asked the... Uh, the secretary there at the window, I said, you know, hey, I'm, I'm here to, to look for a job. And uh, she said, well, give me just a second. Let me go talk to Paul. And so Paul comes up and he said, yeah, come into my office. Do you know anything about gas lift? Right on. I said, I don't know a dang thing about <laughs> gas lift, except you need a compressor to do it. Ah. See? And uh, ah. he said, well, what do you know about plunger lift? I said, I don't know anything about plunger lift. But except I know you- <laughs> sometimes you need a compressor to sell that gas. And they said, what do you know about Packers? I said, well, my dad worked at Baker for 30 years designing oh, downhill right tools and, uh, and manufacturing downhill tools. They said, oh, where, where at Baker did he work? I said, well, he was at, I don't know, Westheimer, Little York, some, you know, somewhere on the Katy side of Houston. Uh-huh. And they said, oh, yeah, I was in that facility for, you know, a number of years. Wow. And he's like, maybe I know him. So, you know, it turns out they didn't know each other. Yeah. But just that was enough for him to get comfortable, I guess, with me. And oh, be like, you know, time. Reed, like. Um, I've got a position. Um, I, I'd like to take a chance on you. It might take a month or two. He said it right there? Right there. He Golly. said it might take a month or two for me to get this through all the corporate. Yeah. You know, and I have to have this position open for two weeks online and Damn. yada, yada. And he said, but stick with me. Yep. I think I've got a position for you. And so um, 
Wow. That first paycheck, to me, at, at 19 years old, 20 years, I guess maybe I was 20 by then, um, was so much money. I'd already met my wife. Um, she wasn't my wife yet. Yeah. Um, but it was so much money, I went out and bought her a new shotgun because <laughs> I didn't know how to spend a check that big, you know? And uh, what are you going to do with money except spend it? That's why you make it. Ah, you got to put it away for that ranch, man. And, uh, and so I, um, I went and bought her a shotgun, and actually I think I've shot more ducks with that shotgun than she has. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, so that was – I feel like that was a divine appointment. And, and Paul was uh, – you ask about mentors. Um, I think about him a lot because he um, – he was very patient and lenient with me as I learned, you he know, knew. what it looked like to be a professional. Right? You were transparent with him. He knew what he was getting, mm-hmm. but you inspired him to teach you. Mm-hmm. Like you were the guy for him. You know, it was a divine appointment for both you guys. Yep. Right? I mean, yep. he, he was like, all right, I know he doesn't know much about plunger lift or gas lift, but he knows compressors. I know what I'm working with. He was, he was up for whatever challenge was to come for that company. He knew that you were going to be there and you were going to show up, right? You, you gave him that confidence in that quick, that super quick, what sounds like a super quick introduction, like cold call, just knocked on doors. <laughs> like you went from there to getting a job that set you up with your wife and you're buying shotguns. I mean, what a story, dude. Yeah. What a story. Yeah. Well, and come to find out, GE had bought Lufkin like three or four months earlier. General Electric or whatever it is. Yep. They were going to enter the oil and gas that. space. They bought Lufkin, and then a couple months later, I think they bought a Wood Group. I don't know them. And uh, they ended up spinning Wood Group off as well. But anyways, we think they bought them for their power transmissions. But long story short, they basically shut our division down. What? And so I spent the first six months um, learning what is gas lift, what is plunger lift, um, yeah. and riding around with some of the techs. And then... Um, talking with some of the more experienced guys that were still at the company, but the majority of them had left because they saw the writing on the wall. Um, I rode that are. ship all the way into the ground in 2015 God when it crashed. Um, and so the last like month, um, it was me and, and this guy, Brandon, we were out back of the shop with a torch, cutting packers in half and throwing them in a dumpster because they didn't want to have to um, carry the inventory. Jeez, so they were right off the inventory. Half off, nothing. No. You know, if I had the money at the time, I might be a millionaire now. Jeez, uh, <laughs> could have been the ranch, man. That's what I'm talking about. So we, uh, <laughs> we rode that one down, and um, I got in with a group in San Antonio that was trying to sell investments into an oil well, and uh, I was there for about two months. We were doing cold call off of lead sheets in an office. And, uh, so they were trying to sell interest in an oil well. Is that how you said that? Yeah. They were selling interest in, in a well they were going to drill. Ah. And uh, I think I was there about, it, it, I want to say it took about two months for me to put all the pieces together mm-hmm. and realize there's a very slim chance, in my opinion, they were never going to drill this well. Yeah. They were going to roll it up, an LLC inside of an LLC inside of an LLC, oh and they were gone. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. And the way they were spending money, you know, and all this. And so... One day I kind of had this realization and I told Steph, and of course this is, you know, when oils crashed in 15, right? Late 15. Yeah. At the end of 14, 15, this is not good. And so I I told, um, um, she was my fiance at the moment and, um, said, Hey, I, I, morally, I can't be here. I know, I, I know they're not going to drill these wells. What we're doing is not right. 
I like, wow. I don't, she's like, well, Reed, <laughs> like we can't live without the paycheck right now. Cause I was buying shotguns and stuff like that. And I hadn't more shotguns, man. <laughs> you know, I hadn't put anything away really, so to speak. Um, I'm 20 years old, you know, yeah, and I, I really shit. didn't know any better at the time. Sure. Um, I, I say I didn't know any better. My parents Maybe had me the, read Dave Ramsey and smart money, yeah, smart kids, but, the but it hadn't, you just, the discipline wasn't there yet. It hadn't clicked. Yeah. And, uh, so I said, what do we do? And, and, uh, I prayed on it and I fasted for a couple of days and, um, prayed and fasted, prayed and fasted. And that's like the common, that's like a maximum combination of clarity or that's what? Right. Man, wow. That's right. Well, and so the thing with fasting is like when you're fasting and anytime you're hungry, it's supposed to be like a reminder to seek God. Right. So like, if you're just praying, you're going through your day and you've got all these other things pulling on you. Yeah. But if you pray and fast at the same time, you know, trying to work through a decision, Every time you have that hunger, every time you have that emptiness inside of you, it's a reminder to go back and, and seek the Lord's direction. How about and, that? Um, so I was, I was doing that, and, and on the third day, I just, you know, clear as a bell, I knew I needed to walk out of there. Trust me, I got it, said the Lord. You know, you walk out of here, you don't need to be around these kind of people. And so I got up, and I said, hey, guys, appreciate the time. Jumped in my 92 Ford F-250 nice. and drove out of that parking lot. 350? What was inside that thing? And uh, it was an old 7.3, but it's a direct injection. It's a dog, <laughs> man. It's terrible. Like, if you got to 65 miles an hour, it's because you were going downhill. <laughs> and uh, wow. so I drove back to the house. I called Steph. I said, hey, I, you know, I quit my job. She was wow. in uh, school getting her master's degree and, um, and occupational therapy. And she's like, in what? what you, in occupational therapy occupational therapy what does that yeah. do it's like uh you know a lot of people are real familiar with physical therapy right right occupational therapy is more um physical therapy is based on like uh musculoskeletal like, yeah anatomy you know, physiology stuff making your muscles work again occupational therapy is making you work again right so like instead of figuring out how to open and close your hand uh -huh. after you've had a stroke it's like how am I able to grab a spoon, whatever that may look like, so that I can feed myself? Jeez. So it's wow. like, it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's totally separate field, but the easiest way that I found to explain it after 10 years, and it's still, <laughs> you know, kind of foreign to me, kind of like what I do. Yeah. She tells people I'm just an overpaid delivery boy, you know, <laughs> you and, uh, delivering donuts and whatever <laughs> else to offices. And, uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's more about making you functional in your body. Yeah. Um, and huh. so, um, anyway, so she was in, you know, she was in school there getting her master's degree. And, uh, I started putting my resume back out. I started calling folks and, uh, I called a friend of mine, um, Kobe Kynard, who was down here working. And, uh, I said, Kobe, I need, I need a job and I need it bad. Mm -hmm. I said, are y'all hiring? He said, no, we're not hiring. He said, but I think these guys need somebody in North Dakota. Oh, damn. I said, all right. So he gave me contact to, like uh, Steph. to, to Bob Bishop. <laughs> and I called Bob. I hadn't even told Steph yet. I called Bob. Oh, damn it. I explained to him a little bit of my background and whatnot. And he said, sounds good. Uh, I'll expect you up there in a week. Gosh, damn. And so I had a job within 24 hours. And I had been looking during this whole time. The last, you know, three months that I had been out and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, two months working for CMV and, and uh, those fellas. And within 24 hours... I had a job in North Dakota. And, uh, and the reason I say this is a series of divine appointments, right? I, I, can't, I feel like I can't deny it, and I can't not include it. Because 
we bought that plane ticket. I went and got my physical, started doing all my stuff for the next week. And the what morning the I job? went running gas lift, okay. gas lift technician in North Dakota. And so I knew how to set up jobs and knew how to run them at that point and, and so on. And so, um, it was the thing that Paul had just trained me for. Okay. Right. And, uh, so we get it all set up the morning we go to leave. I can't find my wallet. It's four in the morning. My plane leaves at six 30. Come on. I can't find my wallet. Come and I'm on. looking and I'm looking it's and I'm ADHD, looking, man. man. It's I'm got telling you. you, where did this go? <laughs> it's got you. Uh, so I, I, I called my folks. I was like, Hey, I don't know how I'm going to get to North Dakota, but I can't wait any longer. Like we're going to the airport anyways. We'll figure out something got a along birth the way. certificate or something. You know, I'm living in an apartment with my fiance in San Antonio. And so like passport, I didn't have any identification. So I get to the airport, <laughs> had my tickets printed out, get to the airport. And um, I have one ask. carry on bag <laughs> and I'm going through it again. And in my carry on bag is my Bible. And when I graduated high school, my mom had a Bible made for me that had my name on the front. Nice. And I was like, well, this is identification of who I am. It's I, a got form. Up to, I got up to the front of the line. And I had my ticket. This is my name. TSA. They're TSA. like, yeah, ready to check sec- through. security check. I had my, I had my ticket and I had my Bible. And I looked at the lady. I said, I need to be in North Dakota today for a job that is, you know, going to keep my family fed. Oh and I can't gosh. find my wallet. And this is the only form of identification that I have. What can we work out? And she looks at me. What this lady look like? Oh, you know, she's probably. <laughs> Mid to early 40s. Yep. Uh, a little bit overweight, real curly hair. Just doing her job. Just doing her job. Right? You know. Redhead? Nope. Okay. No, brunette. All uh, right. She wasn't that crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and man, she, she's quiet. And, and I know in her head, she's like, this guy's crazy. Like, yeah. there's no. Yeah. She said, yes. She said, I, I need to pull you to the side so we can do a special screening. And uh, go talk to that man. And she waved to him and he brought me over. And I explained the same thing to him. He said, yeah, sure. So they patted me down. They went through my bag um, by hand. I said, all right, you're good. Hop on the plane. Wow. So I had a layover in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And I'm I'm type 1 diabetic. So my pancreas doesn't work. I've got an insulin pump and a a glucose monitor. Wow, that's like your whole life you've been doing that? Uh, Since I, well, I was diagnosed uh, fall of 13 Jeez. So that first year in college, that's when Golly. I was diagnosed. Um, I get to St. Paul, Minneapolis, my blood sugar is getting low. I'm like, I need a candy bar or something. Like, how am I going to find some sugar to get my you blood sugar back You don't even have cash? Up? You didn't have cash at the I house? Well, I didn't have my wallet. Didn't have, I didn't have any yeah, cash. You know? you didn't, and Steph and I weren't thinking about that. We were just thinking, let's get him on the plane. Right. Right. And get right, him where he's sure. going. Because my new boss was going to be waiting for me on the other side. I mean, I figured cash. he could put me up for a little bit until we figured it out. Have you been to Mexico before? <laughs> yeah. Cash, man. That's cash like. Cash is king. Yeah, right? that's better than an, uh, an ID. So I, uh, I'm like, my blood sugar's getting low. I open my bag back up and I take my boots and set them out, my work boots, my steel toes. And you one got of my a $100 boots, bill in one of them. One of my boots falls over, my wallet slides out. No way. It's in your boot. I kid you not. <laughs> I'm like. Like, how can you deny this? You know, that like God said, hey, you just really got to trust me here and I'll make it work. God. And uh, my wallet falls, falls out. So I, I go and buy me a, a soda water and a, uh, and a uh, candy bar and, and um, fell in love with North Dakota. Is that right? Absolutely fell in love with it. Um, it was cold. Yeah. But you learn, you know, kind of like it's hot outside today. You learn how to deal with it, you learn how to dress appropriately. 
You learn when, you know, like no. I wouldn't work outside today for eight hours straight because I'd get heat stroke. Right. And the same thing with being out there in the cold, you know, you're not going to be outside in the cold for eight hours straight. You might go do something for 30, 45 minutes, hop in the truck and warm back up. Like, you know, you, you learn your limits, but Jeez. land like I've never seen. Yeah. Ranches, big swaths of ranches mm. and, and community that I've never seen in Texas either. Mm. And uh, everybody helped everybody. I fell in with a great church there. What city are we talking about? Watford City. Watford. Just south of Williston. South of Williston. Yeah. Okay. And uh, there was a Watford City Assembly of God is what I ended up, you know, that first Tuesday I was there, I drove by and it said, uh, Oldfield Christian Fellowship on the sign, Tuesday night, right? 7 p.m. And I was like, well, I need to meet some people. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Oldfield. I'm a Christian. Freaking, it's perfect. Yeah, so, perfect. Um, yeah, it just, I spent, I ended up spending three years there. Um, and after a year and a half, um, with the company that brought me up there, um, they had made some verbal promises they weren't carrying through on. And I was a little frustrated with that. Um, and so I decided that I was going to try to figure out how to get back to South Texas. So I called around some of the folks I knew in South Texas and they said, no, we don't have a job down here, but we'd like to open a district in North Dakota since you're already there. Really? And I was like, let's talk. So, um, Ricky Seagraves, who, um, has been a, a, a big mentor since this point forward. And this was 2016. I've, I've gone to Ricky a, a, quite a bit since then, just with questions uh, about how to, how to approach situations and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rick Seagraves, Flew up there, him and Kelly Raper, and we sat down and we had lunch. And uh, I had a list of demands. You know, I was like, if I'm gonna stay in North Dakota, yeah, you, you're gonna, you're gonna, smart man, all of this, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, so I was negotiating from a point of point of power and, and experience. Um, yeah, we sat down and uh, we looked across the table and uh, we talked about a couple of things. And at one time, I very vividly remember um, Rick looking up at me. And um, I don't remember why he said it, but he said, Reed, I don't believe there's coincidences in mm -hmm. life. I hear that all the time. And I was like, where do I sign? You know, and they met, they met all the demands, every single one of them to a T. Um, and so we opened the shop in North Dakota. I promised them a year. Um, nine months in, my wife was still finishing her degree down here. Oh, geez. Um, you know, when I was laid off the first time, she'd more or less just started her master's degree. Yeah. And so here we are almost three years later. I've been up there, uh, nine months with, with uh, priority and um, she's living with you up there. She was living in San Antonio. Oh my God. And I was, I was living in North Dakota. So we'd been married, but apart for a little over two years Son at this point. God, what an interesting start to a young marriage. And she called me crying. She said, I can't, I can't do it. Oof. I need, I need to come up there. I'm going to quit school and come up there. Oof. Or I need you to come home. Wow. And, uh, I called Rick and, uh, you know, I was, I cry a lot. Like, you know, I, I don't You're connected, know. Connected, man. I'm emotional. Yeah. I, I cry. And, uh, I shouldn't say a lot. I cry sometimes. <laughs> um, just for the <laughs> record. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's strike that one. Um, he answered the phone. He was like, Hey Reed, what's going on? I said, well, my wife, he said, stop it right there. He said, we mm. think your marriage is more important than anything. And I said, well, I, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna do for a job. Y'all have anything open down there? Mm -hmm. And he said, we don't have anything open in, in Texas. Damn. He said, but I think your marriage is important. And I know you promised me a year. Don't feel bad about that. 
Like business was going all right. Business was going well. Good. And um, he said, whatever you need from me, plane ticket, a U-Haul, you need me to buy you out of your rent at your apartment. He said, you name it, I'm going to get you home to your wife because we think your marriage is more important. Jeez, what a guy. And so, you know, that relationship going forward, like when I have hard decisions, um, I text, you know, I text him, oh, like, hey, I man, bet, I don't man. know which way to go here. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think? And, and often, you know, and just like two or three weeks ago, he responded to a text I sent him. And uh, you're like, should I do this podcast? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> he said, remember, it's not about you in that. And I was like, Whew, I had to sit back for a minute. And I was like, that's calling me out. Damn it. It's calling me like this podcast. I guess this podcast is about me. Yeah. I don't know. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's been so far. Yeah, we, we could it, take man. a different tack, but um, man. So, anyways, all that we went to uh, after that, I found a job in in Midland, um, with Superior, and that transitioned me um, more from just Packers and Gas Lift into um, Completion Tools. Oh snap! Um, High so pressure stuff, huh? We were doing a lot of work for Anadarko at the time. Uh, before they got bought out by Oxy. Um, so you kind of really understood this problem we all face as operators, which is these limitations we put on the holes we drill, mm-hmm. which is called production equipment, mm. <laughs> but it's just a limitation to the reservoir. Well, it's, it's crazy because it's like all these really crooked wells, seeing me picking up wells in the future, as an operator, I'm like, could y'all like slow down and straighten some of that stuff out? No. But as a gas lift guy, I'm like, they ain't never going to rod pump that. That's fact. So gas lift's the only option they got. Right. Like, this is good for my sales, you know, in in the tool side. But yeah, yeah. Like you said, it's absolutely. um, And and then that got into the the production deal where I felt like I really understood the downhole tool side. You know, as, as far as what it takes to mechanically make a well and look at a well and be like, hey, is, is there integrity here? Um, that's cool. But I, I didn't really understand and I still don't understand. And, and part of, you know, expanding my network and going to the summer rocks event is like, I don't understand geology. Uh-huh. I, I do to some extent sure. and I have a heart for it and I pick up things fast. Right on. I've never had any kind of formal training. I've never had a geology mentor. Oh, dude. And You're so the perfect geologist. I want to, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. I, I want to. I want to get that knowledge too. Hell yeah. Right? Hell yeah. I mean, you've been watching the earth breathe in these hydrocarbon deposits, which are super unique. They don't happen everywhere on the planet. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of it, but everyone's very, every one of them's very different. Every one of them has a slightly different rockets in. Every one of them has a, definitely has different chemistry of the brines, the oils, and the gases it makes. Every one of them has its own cycle of when the gas oil, and then the coil comes and then it brines. Like everything's so interesting. Yeah. And it all relates. It all is connected. You just need the model. You need the tools. Right. To allow you to get the right data to help you better understand why it's more gassy here or why the API, the gravity, the oil is changing that way. Yeah. You, you just need the tools to figure it out. Well, and without those tools, you can't. You can't put together your own ideas. You're just doing what everybody else does because that's where they've done it and that's how it was done. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. so it's like, um, you know, so far with the production company, we've bought production. Yep. You know, or picked up Orphan Well production yep. and put it back on because the mechanical side to me is easy to go evaluate and to, and to put that together. 
but like talk about you know like the a, we've got a yewa well real close to my house what's it called a yewa y a y e g u a y e g u a yeah that's the name of the reservoir it's the name of the reservoir it's a sand what what's the age i don't know oh it's 4,500, it's 4,800 feet deep at that oh, point. Oh, it's deep. So it's probably Cretaceous or something. Down um, it's below the Vicksburg. Below the Vicksburg. So that's, yeah. Vicksburg is Cretaceous, I think. Wait a minute. Vicksburg is somewhere around the Austin Chalk, Eagleford, Buddha. It's, right? uh, it's, it's above the Wilcox. Oh, it's above the Wilcox. It's above the Wilcox and below the Vicksburg. Okay. <laughs> Let's not get all crazy. I don't know. The, the geology also in all these areas changes drastically. And okay. then one thing we're trying to do as geologists, certainly like academia and stuff, is put together the big regional story. Mm -hmm. Right? How does that timeline, mm -hmm. which is really what we have in geology or geologic footprint, like geologic stamps in time. Mm -hmm. And the big confident ones are usually the huge unconformities where you see a lot of breaks, a lot of big tectonic events happening. Okay. That's where we put the big bars of time is like the most obvious global events will have those. And then you just start narrowing down and your reservoir is going to have a super specific part in that part of the world while the rest of the world has all this other geology going on. Okay. And how does yours fit into that? Uh -huh. Right. How does the rocks that you're in in that age fit with the global tectonic story? That's the first objective that you need to do as a, as a, as a geologist in training. Okay. <laughs> Let's get the age locked in. In training. Okay. Let's get the freaking age of this thing. I got a cross section. We, we get to edit all this stuff. So don't worry about me. Oh, no worries. I, I don't, I don't mind sounding dumb. I know there's a lot. I don't know. And no, that's, dude, no, you don't sound that's dumb the whole point is for me to learn. That's right. Like, uh, you know, if I went and learning, then I, I guess I'd be working an eight to five somewhere. And that's not what I want to do. <laughs> you said it. Well, that's the truth, ain't it? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. get into a, you get into certain opportunities, and it's like at some point you're doing your job, you're making a living, but what are you learning? Right. You know, there's there's so much more to your time and attention on Absolutely. life, and your you, the level of connection that you obviously have with this earth we live on, dude. Like. There's no way you're going to be stuck in a chair doing the same thing over and over. Like, that's just not <laughs> Which you. is why school is so hard for me, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, All right. Let me get this paper. So I've had a, a, a geologist from the area. Um, I sat down with him for about 30 minutes and said, nice. hey, you know, what do you know about these wells? And he's mm -hmm. like, actually, I drilled those wells in 05. Nice. Oh, <laughs> so like 2005 age? 2005. That's great. Uh, they were recently drilled by an, an independent. And so... Um, he said that they're like a laminated sand in that area. Laminated sand, okay. Which I don't know if that's like a real term, but that's what I took away. <laughs> right, that's what I took away from it. Who knows yeah. what the technical term was? But he, you know, he explained it to me kind of as like a laminated sand, right? And so um, where it's not as tight like a shale, right? You know, where, where there's just no porosity, but that all these little stringers of sand yep. are kind of separated by something, maybe a little bit shaley but they don't communicate well. And so these wells, like they can have pretty decent IPs. How thick are these sands? These laminated sands, is he um, talking about? You know, there's probably like 300 feet-ish of Yewa, but like the, the section I'm producing from yeah. is maybe 60 foot thick in this area. And from the offsets, I was looking back, 
it doesn't really seem to matter if people perf the top five feet or the or 40 feet they're gonna make about the same oil and so I'm like well, what's you know what's going on yeah. why is this little bit of sand but they don't seem to make a but ton more water either right and so like i know we're getting into some reservoir stuff that i also don't fully understand but um you know my thought is like how do i go into these and if they're not really communicating well yeah you know how do we get that communication out there in a way that i can drain a bunch more of this right that's right uh, so you know i've got some so have you tried to recomplete these wells at all have you tried anything hadn't yet no. And what are they picking it on? Like, are you seeing logs that they're making these yeah, picks on? Yeah, it's a real, um, with South Texas operators, mm-hmm. this particular Yewa section is, I want to say Rajan called it an E4, the Yewa E4 maybe, but um, it's like a very signature look on the log. The whole section is? Um, or the just what you particular perf. part that they want to perf. Okay. It's like a very signature kick with like another little squiggle below it. Um, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Resistance. Yeah, it's one of them things. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I should have brought some files for you. But, yeah, uh, no, we, we're just getting started, man. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm just asking all these crazy questions like we're actually going to figure something out today, which we won't, of course, but I always dream that we will make a discovery, you know? Yeah. Early Eocene, Gulf of Mexico shelf margin, early Eocene, and Oligocene. Okay, so that's your early Eocene. Let me get another strap column going. Go ahead, man. Keep up. Well, and so this, this geologist that put this together showed me some, some maps of the field, lowest known oil points, you know, average thickness, different things like that, what he thinks the fault looks like. And there's kind of like a, all right. You're really going to have to help me out on some terminology here, but there's kind of like a dip on one side, uh-huh. and then he said it, it, it kind of rolls over like this. So, like, it faulted in oh, this way. Oh, thrust fault. Yeah, it looks like a thrust fault. And there's, like, kind of a lip here. Okay. That, like, there's some high point, but if you get too close to the fault, yep. you don't get any oil. It's You've just... got to stay, like, far enough kind of down into this little dip. Yep. Um, but then we're, we're, there's oil in the formation on both sides of the fault. Really? Yeah, Typically, good, it gets gassier on one side. Do good you production on both sides. Good production on both sides. Yeah, good oil production on both sides. So anyways, he's mapped this area, and his oil in place says like 4 million barrels. 4 million barrels in place for one well with like a 10-acre, 20-acre, 30-acre? No, 20 no, no, acre, no. no. Um, the whole area is maybe 6,000 acres or so. And he's saying four, he's calculating 4 million in place in the whole I think 6, it's 000. about 6,000 acres, yeah. 6,000 acres. I might be, he, he's going to call me and be mad. But, uh, you know, <laughs> it's not that much. I mean, it's, it sounds like a lot, but the recovery factors on this stuff is going to be real low. I, right. Well, Normally. and so that's where we're at. They've recovered about 400,000 barrels out of this field. So that's 10%. Right. Yeah, so like, good. but Yewa in South Texas, according to, you know, this, this fellow who's been a geologist for 55 years, an independent geologist for 55 years. He says, you know, a typical Yewa ought to be 20-something percent recovery, if I'm remembering correctly. So yeah. Somebody's going so to call in and yell at you. But that's where I'm looking, and I'm like, well, shoot. You know, other than operating the well for 40 years to get there, like, how can we unlock some right. more of this? That's right. All these holes are already drilled. That's right. You got no drilling money you need. That's right. Get yourself a, a new completion on this thing. Yeah, yeah. But it's going to be real scary when you actually pull the trigger on that. So tell me your thoughts, man. What are you thinking? 
and how much money are you talking about spending for a completion? You have the, you, the idea is hundred percent there and I guarantee you, yeah. you're going to get better connection, right? Guaranteed. You need to do some studying on the fluids that coming out of the hole to mm -hmm. figure out where you are relative to this fault he's talking about. Okay. Cause as you approach the fault, you're going to get more water. He calls it right. Right. Which is a brine. Right. That brine's full of chemicals, full of metals, full of all that kinds tells of stuff. you a little something. Oh, about. it's telling you a lot. Really? As you get away from that and you obviously have production, so you know, you're in this sweet spot mm -hmm. away from the fault, you're going to see changes in that chemistry big time between your own wells. Interesting. And that's going to give you a better idea, especially if you can get some offset operators too. If you can really get the data around well, so the area, like, look, this, this field is, you talk about offset operators. Like it's, nobody's really operating in it right now. Really? All Sleepy. these wells got down to where they were doing two barrels a day. You know, they traded hands. Somebody sold bad investments to somebody, owed somebody some money. They've Golly. all just kind of, and that happen all the time. They're just kind of sitting around. And that's what got me interested is they're super close to my house. Like I could ride over there in my underwear on the four wheeler and pump them. And I was like this, <laughs> yeah, I'll be all right. It's a dream. <laughs> yeah, know? dude. That's all right. I don't do that, but it'd be cool if I could. Well, and I've got a four year old and a two year old, right? So I like spending time with them and I would love to you be got a four and a two year old. Do you have a brand new baby too? No, don't tell me you have a brand new one. No, okay. I had a P and a operation. So. <laughs> We're done on that one. Ah, that's such a good oil and gas operating pun, <laughs> dude. Like, there's not too many people that'll just catch that right away. We're out. <laughs> that joke. Uh, right on. Well, I have I have a four and a two, but I we also went with the third, so I have uh, a, a six month. Yeah. Very cool. Congratulations. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's been, okay, you're at the boundary. Oh wow. Okay, so this thing's at the boundary of the Eocene and the Oligocene. Okay. Which is interesting because in South Texas. The Eocene is what's happening is a big flat subduction event from the West, from Mexico. Okay. And it's riding these things called slab tears. These are like railroad tracks for the subducting plate to go in on. Okay. These are slab tears. Slab tear comes right through San Antonio, right through South Texas. One of the slab tears called the Chihuahua. That thing, so you're on the South side of the Chihuahua and you're getting flat subduction in this area regionally. Okay. Which is going to bring in shales and sands and this carriage enriched it's rock. It's kind of like mixing them all up as they're big time. across each other. Big time. Okay. And it's coming through. There's, there's a, a few things, a couple things different that are happening here. One, you're getting mud volcanism. Okay. So you're going to, up these faults that he's talking about, mm -hmm. you're getting these depressurizations because the crust is heating up violently, right? It's, it's a very hot event. When the, when the plate goes shallow, it heats up the crust. Okay. That's a, that's a big regional thing happening. So you're mm -hmm. getting a lot of heat. You're getting devolatization of gases and oil and, and brine, right? It's, it's a very active, dynamic, water rich system and you're making a lot of rocks from that so you're seeing big sedimentary features of these muds piling out sands and shales and and you're drilling in that that's what you're drilling from that lamination could be you you what you could be seeing there is a cross-section of a of micro mud volcanism so you're okay. seeing these surges in the micro mud volcanism coming out at that time and you're seeing that's your reservoir. Okay. And you're trying to stay in connection with the quartz stuff because that's where the fluid's really moving. Mm -hmm. But it's all coming from that fault and structures from below that the fluid flow of this system 
is going to be very interesting, super dynamic. Hmm. But at least you now know that you have a converging vector. Your your structures mm -hmm. are being made because you're getting shallow, steep, uh, flat subduction coming from the west to east across your acreage. Mm -hmm. So when you start looking at fault maps and you start looking at faults of uh, that that fault that he's talking about, yeah, you're going to orient yourself there. Uh, well, it's it's super obvious if you just look at the railroad commission, like how they've drilled wells, yeah, over time along this the direction of the fault. Right on. Yeah, for you know for the simple minds. All right, this tell is, me. This is called an Andy cube. Okay. This is sold by Molly Turco. She's hopefully going to be at the event. You're going to get one of these for being there. Okay. You're going to get one. So. You can Sweet. look at it, but you can't have that one. That one's mine. <laughs> See where it says Sigma 1? Sigma 1 up top? Yep. That's your maximum compression. That's your, that's for you in this area at this time, I'm predicting that your Sigma 1, right? So your most compression at the time is coming from west to east. You're getting that big compression okay. from the tectonics coming in from the west mm -hmm. while your rocks are being made. So when you get this cube and you go back and start pulling out your maps and you're looking at these faults, line up Sigma 1 okay. from west to east and then start fitting those blue lines and these fault. Those are fault lines. The these. blue, Yep, the blues, the reds, and the oranges. Okay. Start trying to fit that to the story. Okay. But you know your converging vector or you're assuming your converging vector based on the regional tectonics at the time. We're getting flat subduction. Basically, the, the Rocky Mountains are coming to an end. That's what's happening okay. during that time. You're getting the big Rocky Mountain, Laramide, Severe, Orogeny, that mountain-building event. You're that's what you're feeling in, in South Texas at this time in the reservoir. Okay. So you, got, you put your Sigma-1 in that direction with the Andy Cube mm -hmm. and start mapping. Start mapping. Where do you see tension? Tension's going to be probably where this reservoir is building. It needs space, right? You need space for reservoirs. So yeah. that's typically your tension, which should be those orange lines. Your orange lines okay. are going to be the, mo the they're called like yeah. mode two fractures or whatever. It's separation, it's tension, which is going to be perpendicular to sigma three, which is your least amount of compression. Hmm. So anyway, that thing comes with uh, cards to, to read up on and how, how it works, but it's based on mechanical engineering. Like you break a piece of wood, bang, that piece of wood breaks just like these rocks do. Okay. You start with a compression, right? You know your main compression direction, start splintering that wood, and that's what's happening in these freaking faults and fractures. Interesting. Yeah. It's all based on, you know, fundamental mechanical engineering stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Sounds like a badass project, dude. Well, it's, uh, like I said, it's, it's uh, just starting. We, um, where I have my production in Lavernia. We, we produce from what they call in this field the the K Navarro. The K Navarro, okay. Yeah. Or, in, you know, in East Texas, they have a Navarro? Well, in West Texas, I mean, in, uh, right here in Somerset and, and right here we have Navarro. It's real similar. I, and I think it might be the same deal, but see, my oil is like 31 or 32 degree gravity. Nice. And I think this stuff's a little bit heavier over here in Somerset, isn't it? Uh, I produce 36. 30, okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, but well, there is heavier, heavier. So the Navarro is where I'm producing from. Um, and I believe the Poth is right above it. And the Wilcox is on top of that. And the Wilcox is my water table. So when I get my, my um, water board letters, they say to the bottom of the Wilcox. Oh, wow. Which like two years ago blew my mind because where I'm from in Cuero, 
the Wilcox is like 8,000 feet and makes a millions of barrels of oil. And wow. I was like, how is that a water table? Isn't that amazing? You know, and so this crash course in geology over the last three years, it's just like it, it I don't have enough time in the day yeah. to get, to even get as fascinated as I want to be with it because I get so far down a rabbit hole. Oh man, I know. <laughs> Wait until you see the video. So we're putting out videos to the nonprofit we helped start called Magma Kim Research Institute. That's where the slab tears are coming from. A lot of this work they did under major, super major projects, right? Mm -hmm. But it's a long time ago, so it's all public information and we're, we're publishing it through the nonprofit. That's the point of the nonprofit is to get, give this back to the community. Okay. So a lot of these geologic things and concepts I'm talking about are found there. And me and my counterpart, Stan Key, he's the guy who kind of created it all from the 70s and 80s. Uh, we go tit for tat on these YouTubes, so I'll send you the link to them. Cool. As, and we're talking about the outcrop we're going to be studying here at the at the golf course. Yeah. And but you'll get a lot of these ideas. You'll see a lot of these diagrams I'm talking about. A lot of these cart, big cartoons, regional geology stuff that I think can be really helpful. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so, just understanding it. As uh... well, you understand. What's interesting is you understand producing it. Yeah, right. Yeah. How did it get there? And why yeah. is it where it is? Yeah. I love that you asked that question. Not a lot of people do. It's just, let's let's figure out how to produce this thing right. better. Uh, well, if I know why it's there, then I can go find right. more. That's right? right. That's exactly right. You know which way to go. You're not just shooting fucking in the, you know, just firing a shotgun everywhere kind of thing. Walking like, around with my witching sticks. Yeah, which could have something going on with EM or whatever. But no, there's a much more sophisticated, much more specific way to get it done. You just need those tools. You need to learn those tools. And, yep. and, uh, and that's something that uh, I would love to, to help out with. And just, you know, if, if there's anything I can do to help with that stuff for sure. But you learned how to produce it, which is interesting to me. And now tell me your, your next career step is going the other way. You're now going to complete, you're going to frack into it. You're going to, you're going to perforate these zones. What are you doing with completions? Well, I really don't know. Um, I don't know where my next career step is. So in the middle of all this, when, um, oil crashed in 20, I lost my job in, in Midland. Um, and, uh, my wife and I, had a house on a little piece of land out there and we decided to sell it and move home. Um, the real estate market was still great in Midlands. So we were like, let's sell that and move back to the family ranch in Cuero there. Nice. Um, my family's been on this place since 1865. What? And, um, so we, we bought a portion of it from my folks and, um, wow. built a house on that. So that's where we're living to be, you know, to be closer to the roots and closer to the family and yeah, build a community that uh, we do. Yeah. Let's drill a well. Yeah, come on. I'm ready for it. Where's my book? Drill a well in my backyard. <laughs> I got a book called Drill a Well. That one. Come drill a well in my backyard. Okay. We got to read that thing. Actually, I think, uh, yeah, I think there's some potential. I've been, I've been toying with the idea. Yes. But um, I'm, I'm not there yet. Uh, <laughs> they drilled one. Well, there's oil all around us. They drilled one in the 80s on my grandpa's place, um, you know, the, the fence line uh, that we border. And uh, he claims that they messed it up and lost some tools down hole uh -huh. and yeah. had to cement it in. So really, I don't, I don't know it's that it's been, been truly evaluated. That happens all the time. Um, all the time. And, you know, like these wells were drilled in, in the early 2000s, people were still looking at conventional stuff. But since everything kicked off in 2008, you know, vertical rigs are less than 10 in South Texas. You know, there's not a lot of people poking conventional reservoirs right now. Wow. So, Damn, um, less than 10 in South Texas. I think on average, it's less than 10 not vertical. Not the 
horizontal drillers, the big, those big rigs. Yeah. You're not talking about them. No, you're talking, talking about, about you know, mid horsepower, vertical rigs. Yeah. I think they we averaged less than ten for the last ten years. Wow. Well, maybe in fifteen. 14 and or 15 can, before can, busted, they were they were a little higher, but these can get to about 10,000 feet, kind of thing, or 7,000. You know, I think some of these guys go seven or eight. Yeah. Um, so you yeah. can hit these high pressure zones in the Eagle Fur, Austin Chalk, kind yeah. of ideas. So dang, dude, can you imagine drilling a 7,000, 8,000 foot well in your backyard? Oh, that'd be crazy. That'd be awesome. I'd love it. Oh man, I'd love it. That would be awesome. Uh, talk about pumping in your underwear. You know, <laughs> like, come on, dude. <laughs> if that thing came on, are you kidding me? Oh, it'd be it'd be awesome. Well, and having the mineral rights on it too, right? right. Being being the operator and having the mineral rights wouldn't that be a dream? That is the dream, man. And that uh, is the dream. So I don't really know where where it's going because um, I guess we're, before we got on that tangent, when it shut down in twenty. Um, you know, I was let go from, from an employer and I was mad because some of the stuff didn't come around the way I thought it was supposed to come around. Um, as far as, uh, you know, my ownership in the company didn't vest because it was only 11 months and a couple of days and invested at 12 months. And, oh, geez. you know, I was, I was, uh, I was hot over that. And now I look back at that as, um, kind of a blessing and a catalyst to be where we are. Yep. Um, is. what it, what it did was it told me that I didn't want to work for anybody else you know, as much as possible. And, um, so we went fishing for a couple of months. Uh, my wife and I took the RV and the boat to the lake and we fished for like a month straight. Dude. And, you um, kidding me? and, and then decided to start our own tool company. Ah. So we got a little heavy, we got a little too heavy in the entrepreneurship. <laughs> like everybody talks about grind, yeah. right? Um, there's a limit to that. Yeah. Heck yeah, there is. Um, we started four, let's see. We started Jaybird Resources that fall, picked up that well in, in 2021. We started Clarabelle Cattle Company when we moved home, and we're selling beef direct to consumer, um, feeding out animals on our property and grass finishing and right grain on. finishing on, I wanna on request. Buy, I want to buy it. You got, you got enough for me? We've throttled that down. Damn um, and But we'll talk later. <laughs> um, we started um, her um, occupational therapy company, um, and we started the tool company. Um, the downhole tool company and uh, Tarpon Old Tools, and so Tarpon has been great um, the last three years. It's it's taught me a lot. Um, like we were talking about earlier, knowing you know what you are and are not good at, mm -hmm. and putting in safeguards, um, you know, to to make sure that those things get taken care of. Um, Tarpon has been the biggest instrument in telling me you know what I need help with. Wow! Um, How'd you come as, up with the name? Uh. We had, um, there were four partners to start. I don't know. I think they were spitballing some names and uh, we all voted on it. And, um, part of the deal was, um, Tarpon was like, uh, we all like to fish and, uh, we're pretty close to the coast. And Tarpon was one of those names. It was like, oh yeah, I think I've heard of that company. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you know how it is in oil and gas, like your name's everything, right? Yeah. And uh, people people want to have heard of you and be familiar with you. I mean, I'm being I'm being like as brutally honest as you can yeah, be. Yeah, uh, this is great. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's it it just fit. It fit us and our personality. Um, and the logo is a fish with a gear. Fish and a gear. Fish and yeah. gear. Yeah. Fish and gear. Uh, one of the partners, his son is 19 or 20. Drew that up one weekend. We were like, shoot, that looks good. Wow. Um, right on. How much how much bar how many barrels a day are you getting out of this thing? 
In Lavernia? Yeah. A barrel a day. About a barrel and a quarter. A barrel and a quarter from how many wells? Uh, that's from nine wells. Nine wells. You have injectors? Injectors? No. What are you doing with the water? You don't make much? Yeah, it's 50% water cut. We dispose oh, yeah, of it. you were telling me that. And it's like 8,000 uh, ppm. Like, I mean, it's pretty fresh. And um, so we just dispose of it. And uh, yeah, it's... So the well pumps off all the time? Oh, yeah. I've got them on little uh, Balmain Chinese timers. Mm-hmm. And uh, I pump them. Well, I've been playing with some, some stuff, right? Because like if you don't get a full um, tubing column, a fluid out, mm-hmm. and every time you pump half a column... Then all your stuff settles back down. That's right. You pump half and it settles back down. So I've been playing. We don't have a lot of stuck pumps or bad checks or anything like that. Uh, we've worked over two wells in three years oh, um, nice. that really actually had a downhole problem. Um, cool. But I've been playing with, you know, theoretically, you want to keep everything as pumped off as possible. As low bottom hole pressure as possible lets you have some more migration from the reservoir, right? There's no back That's- pressure. Yeah, that's if your reservoir is high energy. Yeah. You need to, you, you're, what you're probably going to want to do, or at least test it, is shut it in for a few days, mm-hmm. and then slowly pump it, shut it in for a few days, and then quickly pump it, shut it in for a few days, slowly pump it, and see the, the difference. It's a lot of babysitting. But what you're doing is, when, you're, when you shut it off, that pressure and fluid that's coming from the system mm-hmm. that's migrating that's under insane pressures and and temperatures it's hard to imagine what's really going on there but it is a different environment than like tabletop right mm-hmm. the fluids are in different states the gases are certainly in different states and all that fractionation is happening if you keep it at low energy you're just going to get low seepage mm-hmm. there's going to be a sweet spot in the system that you can get it back to if you got enough area, which you should have with nine wells. Yeah. You should so, have control of, of well, its Well, it's, it's interesting that babysitting I've done with these timers, I can, you know, I can, I can pump one, one time a week for three hours, or I can pump 15 minutes four times a day, or three times a day, or whatever, um, every di- day of the week. And nothing's different? I have not found anything different. And so, like, if a well shuts in. Mm-hmm. Say it's shut in for a month. Yeah. Right? Instead of it making its eighth of a barrel a day, right. shut in for a month. First day I turn it on, I make two or three barrels, and I get exactly back to my eighth of a barrel a day, and everything that I made up is what it would have produced over the last month. Yeah. I mean, it is, and I'm talking within like decimal points. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. It's just this easy going. But I was told by somebody that this uh, formation, you were talking about age and everything, this formation, uh, the Navarro, is like a real dirty, nasty... I've heard that um, too. Sand. Sand. It's yep. like a shelly mm-hmm. sand. And that at the time it was deposited, that there was like a ton of carbon, and it's just kind of like mucky. There's a ton of CO2 in the atmosphere, and it's kind of mucky. Interesting. Yeah. No, I've heard the same thing. It's a pretty kind of shitty yeah. reservoir. <laughs> but... You're at 4,000 feet? No, 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 no. These wells oh, that's, that, that these I was just talking about, anywhere between or... 700 and 1,000. There's right. actually a fault line through my place. Is that right? Yeah, the front half, all of my wells are 785, roughly. Um, I don't know. Some of them are drilled in the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to go get a plumb bob and measure them. But um, the back half, everything is 1,030 to 1,090. 
Wow. So and you know, of course, it's on that typical Texas tilt. It's all so the fault dipping to the to the north or to the south. So the north is the shallowest. The south yeah. is the deepest, and dead through the center of my lease, there's this area that wells just historically have not done well. Which way is the fault dipping, though? So the fault runs ver like straight through your property, but the fault has a, an angle to it. The fault runs um, southwest to northeast, and okay. everything on the high side is like 200 to 300 feet higher. Yep. And then everything on the shallow side, of course, is two or 300 feet lower than from the high side. But everything dips. So like on the high, the further you go north away from the fault, the shallower it gets. Same thing's true on the bottom. The further you get away from the fault, it gets... Shallow again. It gets deeper as you go away oh, from the Oh, it gets fault. deeper. So it's like, it's like it's all on this plane and everything was just... Broken offset. like that. Yep. Yeah. So the... Is it a thrust fault or is it a normal, normal fault? That's hey, what I'm trying to get at. Reverse <laughs> fault or normal? If it's if you're on the foot wall or the hanging wall, there's there's definitely a difference, and that's really cool. You got two wells on both sides of of a fault right there. So what's what do you notice the biggest differences between the the sets of wells? Um, you think the APIs are the same? Do you think it's producing the same gravity crude? Pretty close to the same. We've mostly produced on the south side. That's where the newer four wells were, and um, my infrastructure is better down there. So the majority of the stuff on the north side, I haven't done much with. Mm. Um, I've pumped a couple of the wells um, into some temporary tanks to test them. Mm -hmm. um, but like here, and like I said, I over entrepreneured myself. So I started looking at this uh, lease, and I was like, well, shoot, you know, there's 34 well bores on that lease. I was like, and if they're making an eighth a day. You, you know, multiply up. that out. I'm now making four barrels a day. Sure. What I didn't understand and, and didn't really put together, and of course I had it in my mind, I've got all this time right now because I had just started tarping old tools. It wasn't taking a lot of my time. Yeah. Um, you know, we're living on the ranch with the cattle, so I'm like, well, that's not really going to take a bunch of my time, you know? And uh, so I had put myself in this position where I thought, like, I'm going to go redo these flow lines. I'm gonna put all these wells back on. I'm gonna come pump all these myself. Well, you know, Lavernia from Quero is not that far. It's maybe in, you know, an hour and 15, hour and a half Jeez, to get to my way? lease. One, one way. way. Oh, damn. And I was like, you know, it's not that far. But then I've realized over time that if I'm gonna go do anything, I've gotta, I've gotta set aside a minimum of four hours. Oh, yeah. Just to go, you know, go and gauge come. and pump and check, <laughs> yeah. you know, just drive around the place. And so if I'm going to go work, I have to build in a whole day to whole go get day. any kind of work done. Whole effing day. And so I've, I've way underperformed on um, revamping the lease okay. like I had in my head. No, that's good, though. When I got it. And so I've learned, you know, I've learned quite a bit about mm -hmm. what's really possible. And, and what's been nice about that is it didn't cost me anything up front. Like, I got this lease to pay off some back taxes that the dude owed. And, um, and he signed it over to me. He's like, man, I'm ready to retire. Yep. I'm tired of keeping up with it. I bet. And you know, if I lived on the property, it wouldn't be no thing. I'd ride around every day and, and pump them and check them. And you know, I man, I'd have them so dialed in, <laughs> but for me to be running, you know, another company looking at bigger whales that we're picking up, spending time with my kids and my wife and investing in those relationships, yep. it's just, um, 
some days it's a pain in the butt. Yeah, heck yeah. It but is. I'm also like, man, I'm selling a couple loads a year and not really sure. having to do much. It sure. doesn't cost me anything for the most part to keep it. But look, my electric bill is $36 a month. And that's because GVEC charges me $25 a month <laughs> for, the for the meter. You know? So it's like, I don't know. It's kind you of. You got to optimize these things. So the, uh, the reservoir is a, is a crappy little sand. Yeah. Is that the idea? And how thick? How, how thick are your perfs on these ones? Um, 20 to 25 feet. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So, and what were the original IPs? What these what these things come in at? You know, so there were four wells drilled in, um, let's see, two of them were drilled in 2015 and two of them were drilled in 2017. Wow. And the two that were drilled uh, in 2015, um, IP'd at, um, I want to say 11 and 14 barrels a day. Okay. And how much brine? Um, and 50% water cut from inception. From day one. From day and one. How was it completed? They were both fracked. Okay. 15,000 pounds of 3050 brown sand. Okay. Um, how much fluid? Let me think. 400 barrels. 400 barrels put 30,000 pounds away? Put 15,000 pounds. 15 pounds. 15,000 pounds. Yep. I got the frack schedule on my phone here because I've been nice. looking at two of them were fracked. The other two didn't get fracked. And the story I've got is that the guy that raised the money for him went to Vegas and came back without the money to frack him. Right? Why, why like do we that. hear these stories all the time? I like it. Well, in the oil field. You know, oh, it's good dude. for me, though, right? So the two that weren't fracked, I peed at six barrels and eight barrels a day. And I know that because I've been doing a lot of thought on... They were just perforated. They were just perforated. That's awesome. You have a chance to frack those then. And so I'm like, well, is it worth... Because they are making the exact same here six, seven years later as the two that were fracked. It's like we got some of that flush and that IP, but a couple years later, all of them are making their eighth barrel a day, 50% water cut. So it's like, you know, calculate that flush off of it to try to get our return. But long-term, are we really making a difference? So, I don't know, I've, um, I've talked to several. Uh, it's a pound of sand per gallon almost. They fracked it with. Freaking awesome, dude. It's a 30-minute frack. 1,000 PSI breakdown pressure, 400 PSI treating pressure. I mean, like, dude could almost do it with some backyard equipment. <laughs> you know? If he could get his rate up to 20 yeah. barrels a minute, you know? <laughs> Which I've talked to. Like, we've got friends at uh, Barco. They do a lot of pump-down stuff. And mm -hmm. um, they've, been, they've been really good friends and have really helped us out at the tool company um, testing some of the new tools we've developed. Um, and uh, I've talked to them like, hey, if you got some downtime and you just need, you know, somebody to, to help make payroll on, you know, whatever deals sitting in the yard, like maybe you cut me a little sweetheart deal and we come out and we frack these two. Yep. You know, and exactly so uh, how that works. we've almost lined it up a couple of times nice. and they get called out to another job and I'm like, son of a gun. So... I don't think I would put that big a sand in it. You think you'd put a smaller sand? Yeah, I would. I would, I would almost want to just hydrofract the thing. I'd want to put a bunch of fluid away. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, you got to do the chemistry. You got to do the chemistry on your brines, chemistry on the oil. Know what you really have. Yeah. Um, you're not gonna. It's gonna be a, an interesting situation, and you really need to think about. Uh, how you're going to pump the wells after you do this because you're, you're adding a bunch of energy, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going to have this big flush thing come back at you. Mm -hmm. 
and you you don't want to waste it you know you want to mm. you want to slowly efficiently get that off and and it's also going to connect to maybe some other wells it's you know we're on a two acre spacing so it's wow it's going to connect um that's cool you know so put gauges on everything watch the frack watch the gauges see which wells communicated right away start mapping those pathways of migration yeah and then if you feel confident you can put together a production map like a in the sense of like pressure Mm-hmm. And it's and it's connection between the wells. You'll get like a contour map basically, and you're like, okay, that's it's connecting through through this part of the field. Mm-hmm. Now you just take that bubble and start just really slowly producing it and shutting it in, slowly producing it. Maybe you want to put a BPR valve on it and put pressure back on the tubing, and just slowly just get this thing off from what it's done. What it's done because mm-hmm. you're that frack is a is a it's a chemical change it's not just physically busting things open you're chemically changing things in there okay so it's a it's a badass yeah be freaking fun (laughs) it would be fun you'll learn a ton yeah right that's the thing there's like so much i don't you know i haven't thought of and don't know and and um it's like how much time do you spend oh no just dreaming on all these things at some point you gotta you know crap or get off the pot you gotta do it on man. some of them that's and, right uh, and i guess that's really you know where the 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 old mentality comes in right the guys that are like willing to that's to right. gamble and go do it that's so right. i went to lake charles for the first time ever in my lake life Charles. i went i stepped into a casino for the first time ever and before we went i was telling a friend of mine that uh that goes fairly often but he's got a couple of big companies and he's been a little bit of a business mentor for me said yeah man i'm gonna go i'm gonna go gamble you know this will be my first time and uh and uh he's like what do you mean your first time i was like yeah i've never been in a casino <laughs> and he's like bro you've been gambling so hard the last three years he's like i've been watching you he's like it's it's nothing new he's like that actually might be relaxing compared to the gambling you've been doing so um what'd you end up playing i played well i won a bunch of money on blackjack oh really so i walked in i went to the craps table and I lost like $300 in like 10 minutes. Oh, I was yeah. like, what just happened? Yeah, yeah. You know? Craps is awesome, and it could just take your money. Oh, it was gone. <laughs> it's gone. And um, so I ended up playing blackjack, and uh, man, I was doing well. I was doing well. And uh, all of a sudden, it was like 5 in the morning. Jeez, dude. And my wife is like, hey, I'm going to the room. And I was like, well, what time is it? You know, she's like, it's 5 in the morning. I was like, I couldn't leave because I was making money. Uh-oh. And I just kept like, okay, every time I get a hundred dollar chip, I slide it in my pocket. Okay. Right. And so like I kept playing with two or $300 on the table or whatever. Every time I get a hundred dollar chip, I slide it in my pocket. And, uh, that's a good strategy. Was, you know, I was so having fun. If you tank, did you pull a chip out? No, okay. never pulled a chip back Son out. Son of a gun. That's a good freaking run, man. So we got back to the room and, uh, finally they shut that table down. <laughs> They were like, you're done. Yeah. Yeah. At like, I don't know, five or six in the morning, they ended up shutting our table down because they were only going to keep one area open. Uh-huh. You and know? you were making more money than the other area. Probably so. so, so. It's your area that's shut right? down. Right? So I got back to the hotel room. I'm like pulling this stuff out of my pocket. She's like, oh my God, what what happened? I was like, I'm on a streak, baby. I was up like <laughs> like $2,500, yes. right? Yes. And uh, so the next morning, um, you know, we wake up kind of late, you know, nine thirty, ten o'clock, go have breakfast, and uh, we're scheduled to leave. And she's like, well, do you want to try a little more blackjack? And I was like, sure. I lost 200 bucks in like 30 minutes, and I was like, you know, 
let's get out of here. It's like I'm not I'm not gambling all this away again. And so I don't know if I just got lucky. Well, you got a or, you had a strategy. Or if I was I was I was playing the book. I was playing the book hard. Huh. And uh and I wasn't I wasn't well, I was being kind of risky, you know, I was splitting eights and doubling down on some stuff, but like for the most part like I was playing the the smart game. Yeah. And uh anyway, so it worked. So I'm excited to go back one day and uh Keep going can, with it. Yeah. Well, see if I can do it again. <laughs> before you go back to the casino, you got to frack one of these wells. I got to frack one of these wells. Get That's some right. gambling on the on the reservoir going, but it's tricky, man. It's a very very tricky beast. Drilling a new well, going into old areas, and trying to re, you know, revive them. Yeah. Um, it's very very challenging, and business is very very challenging. You know, you're relying on a lot of different companies and their people mm-hmm. uh, in this industry. It's not just you showing up and pumping the wells. It's yeah. you got the right guy who's actually fixing the pump the right way, or he's you know scraping the purse in the right way. Like you, you can mess up so much of the little stuff that just tanks the program. Yeah. So that's exciting, yeah. man. You're an operator. So how many wells do you have? So there's uh, 34 wells there. Okay. Um, and then there's two wells down close to my house. Okay. Uh, and then <laughs> I'm in the middle of another gambling deal right now. I'm looking <laughs> at picking up some wells uh, up towards Gonzales. Okay. And, cool. Uh, and those are Eagleford wells. Oh, and, nice. Uh, they're horizontals. Oh, shit. And, uh, man, I met a guy at the Petroleum Club um, at Nate back in February. Yeah. And we just talked real high level and like... I don't know, a month or two ago, I was unpacking that suitcase. I don't know why that suitcase had got shoved under the bed. Yeah. You know, like there's my ADHD, yeah. right? Um, so I was unpacking that suitcase and I pulled his, his uh, card out of one of my shirt pockets and I was like, oh shoot, I ought to give this guy a call. Yeah. And so we started talking and you know, really I was I was more interested in trying to do his downhole tool work wow. for, for Tarpon for Old him. Tools. Yeah. And, um, but then after we talked for 30 minutes, he's like, hey, did you, did you call me to talk about tools? Did you call me because you're interested in a well? And I was like, well, you know, a little bit of both. It's always a little bit of both with That's me. That's right. And um, so we started talking about these uh, Eagleford wells they have in Gonzales uh, County. And, you know, they operate mostly in East Texas. So it's like not even really, you know, their, their yeah. thing. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, um, I, uh, I started looking at them. The more I look at them, the more I'm like, shoot, these could be like, this could be a thing, wow. but I'm also learning some stuff about, about the, the business side, right? So everything I've done so far, like minus mortgage on a house and, you know, buying a car. Yeah. Like I've always done with my own money. Okay. Right? And so my parents really beat that Dave Ramsey mindset into us. Um, and so like all the wells we have right now, it's all been cash flow. It's all been out of our pocket. Nice. Um, Tarpon Oil Tools, we all put our own money up, never borrowed a dime nice. to start and run the company. Um, and so it's all been cash flow. And so like this deal, I'd have to borrow some money from the bank okay, um, to make it happen. Mm. And part mm. of me is like, you know, really in, in, I don't know, three years, five years, seven years, um, eventually one day, I think I'd like to be all operator and be out oh, on the nice. tool side. You know, one day, like that's kind of my sure. retirement dream, have my wells. Pump right them, ass. ride my horses, check my cows. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Hell yeah. So I don't know how far into the future that is, right? But looking forward at that, with the cash flow we have right now, like there just comes a limit of growth. Like because it's a declining asset, mm-hmm. right? Our production's going down every year. And even if I reinvest all of my money back in, 
I can only organically grow so fast with a company. And is it fast enough to put me where I, I want to be, you know, economically? And so I started looking at these whales and what it would take to, to purchase them and, um, and, and take, you know, money from the bank. And so I'm learning a bunch of new terms, you know, PDP and PB10. Oh, and, yeah. You know, right all, all these cool, fun Golly. things. And so the freaking banks, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I do. I've worked with partners, so I didn't I didn't go to the banks. Um, certainly looked into it, but I'm kind of glad I, I didn't go that route, to be honest. I mean, partners are it's different. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you get a real relationship, you re- real, real communication there with mm-hmm. what goes on. Banks, Machiavellian, dude. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You need to pay that bill, right? Well, in, in some way, I want to... Um, I, what's the right way to say this? I, in some way, I want that relationship to be like strictly business. Because if something doesn't want to work out... I mean, if something doesn't work out, like I don't... I feel like I'd have a hard time feeling personally liable for having lost an investor's money. Right? And sure. that's something I just like personally struggle with. And I know sure. a lot of the oil field... Like it's the only way that it's gotten to where it is. Yeah. And I understand the necessity for it. But I'm like, if I can't guarantee that, yeah, then I have a hard time putting somebody else's money into it. And yeah. I don't, you know, I yeah. don't judge anybody that does that and it does or does not work out. Like that's the way our business is, but I, I'm struggling with that. And I've, uh, there's another uh, fellow that I talked to quite a bit that's had a production company since the eighties. And um, I went to college and did a lot of duck hunting with his son. Mm-hmm. And I started talking to him ab- about this. And he's like, Reed, like, I get what you're saying. Like, at some point, if you're going to grow your company, I think you're going to have to get past that. He's like, you have to realize that they understand the risk. Mm-hmm. They know what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. Like, don't go solicit your grandma to put money into it. <laughs> you know? But, like, people who know and understand and yeah. have done this in other wells and or or. Re- you know, they're in the oil field in some way, shape That's or form, right. you know, they understand the risk and they're not, mm. they're not gonna, I mean, gross negligence and willful misconduct and all that stuff, they'll hold you liable, but like they understand That's what right. it is at the end of the day. And so, I don't know, I've been kind of cool. trying to figure out, you these know, these are uh, vertical, are these rod pumped horizontals at this point? Yeah. Wow. So how far is the kickoff point? Um, one of them's 7,800 and the other is 8,600 feet. And then they both have mile long laterals. Golly. So, yeah. <laughs> Which is like work over cost starts to get higher. Oh, with big that kind of time. Stuff. But these wells are drilled in, you know, I'm not going to say exactly too much. Somebody might be able to go find them by what I've already said. Um, they were drilled, you know, in that like 2010 to 2014 window. Where like we had little baby fracks on all these shell wells, we didn't really understand what we were getting into, um, and so, you know, they were fracked. And all right, shout out to the guys at Forecast, mm-hmm. Zach Copland. So I spent hours, and I thought I was like smart. Okay, so I went in the frack focus reg- registry, and I was looking at you know what chemicals they put down home, but it's got you know quartz silica at twelve point eight percent of volume and 12 million gallons of water. And so like I'm back calculating and I'm like, all right, well, 12% of that, you know, is 1.5 million and um, 1.5 million gallons of sand, how much weight is that, right? So then I was online trying to figure out a calculator, you know, to convert the weight of quartz silica back to pounds um, based off of gallons and, 
And uh, so I came up with like a pretty close estimate that they had fracted at 890 pounds per foot of profit. Okay. Okay. So for every foot of lateral length, they had shot 890 pounds of sand out into the reservoir. Okay. A modern completion in the Eagleford is 2,100 to 2,200 pounds per feet. Wow. Right. And so I did like five mm. hours worth of work to get to this number and be like, this was a little tiny baby frack mm-hmm. back when they did this and we can refract this well and make a butt ton of money off of yeah. it. Right. Like it is to some extent it's virgin reservoir. Like these, these fractures are only 20, 30 feet from the well bore. Right. And so, um, and the wells did good back then. They did pretty good. You know, 400 barrels a day IP. Yeah. Um, they've cumed, I don't know, close to a hundred thousand barrels. Oh, nice. You know, so what's it doing now? Uh, six barrels a day. I shouldn't say that out loud. One of them's doing six barrels and one of them's doing, um, more than 10, less than 20. <laughs> um, so right on, you know, they're, they're getting down into the flat section of their decline curves. How about the brine? A lot of water. Well, see, that's the kicker. One of them doesn't have a whole lot of water. It looks pretty economic. Like one-to-one? Um, I have to go back and look. Okay. And, and the other one has a lot of water. And so what I spent all day working on, Zach and I had a phone call last night in like 10 minutes. Well, in five minutes, he had all the profit per foot pulled up. It <laughs> took me hours to calculate. <laughs> like it was, it was already somehow he, he's pulled this data. Jeez. And it comes out to 881, and I was like patting myself on the back because yeah. I was like 890, you yeah. know, like yeah. I got pretty close being <laughs> simple-minded country boy. And uh, um, that was the kicker. One of the wells is like a money-making son of a gun. E- even with, you know, $2 per barrel disposal cost of water to truck Sheesh. it out of there. Okay? Yeah. It's a money-making son of a gun. Mm-hmm. He was able to pull economics on this and pull the water data and everything. And we found out the other one is not an economic well because of how much water you have to dispose of. And so um, it was just cool because, you know, I had spent all that time and they were able to knock it out so fast and, um, and like give me a really uh, so much more sophisticated approach, you know, to, to what those wells look like. And, and they had things factored in that I definitely wasn't considering. Right. right? So. Yeah, I've um, seen that forecast out of, uh, I, I was going to try to do a podcast with him, meet with him and get a podcast done with Zach. So hopefully that still happens. Maybe yeah. We just never closed the deal. Yeah. But uh, forecast seems certainly pretty interesting. It is. Right on. It is. And uh, in, in running economics on it was so quick compared to the way I've been doing it in my spreadsheet and everything like sure. that, which, you know, at the same time the cost for a seat in one of those programs, why I've never had, you know, embarrass or drilling info, why I've never had forecast or, you know, any of these programs okay. is because the cost on a seat has been for a dude that's making, you know, a barrel a day. Right. Or now, you know, six or seven barrels a day. Like yep. I can't really justify that. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's um, hard. But they were like, Hey, let me evaluate this for you. I'm going to show you what the program does. I hope this works out for you. Right and on. then when you're making, 200 barrels a day, come buy a seat. There you go. You know, so you can keep bumping it up and make That's more and more. And so, um, how cool, but yeah, blew, blew my mind, right on. uh, the, the economic forecast that they were able to do, but yeah, so it, now I'm trying to figure out, you know, do I want to go two feet in? Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't back away. You don't kind of go lukewarm on something like that. You either decide you're doing it or you're not. Yeah. That's definitely a big step, man. 
That's freaking wild, wild <laughs> to think about. Uh, talk to me more about tarpon. Tarpon, yeah. and let's because this is obviously the drill drill down segment, the PB podcast, and we are going to talk. I, I would like to just know what it provides, mm-hmm. right? You started it. What does tarpon provide to the industry? What are your client? What, are, what are most of your clients using from tarpon? Yeah, so tarpon is downhole tools. Um, you know, we say that kind of broadly, but we're we're. I guess the easy way would be um, float shoes and toe sleeves all the way through plunger lift. Um, so you need frack plugs, packers, liner hangers, um, gas lift, um, squeeze tools. Wow. You know, um, composite Light, bridge plugs, li- retrievable bridge plugs. Is a liner a hanger, is that for bad casing? Or um, what, do you, what do you use that for? Yeah, so, so sometimes you could use one for bad casing maybe um, or for a refract, so like, uh, which is real popular and, and it's on my mind right now. But um, say we have five and a half, 20-pound casing all the way throughout our horizontal. Um, and, and what's becoming a hot market is you could then take a refract liner um, and hang off four-inch flush joint inside that five and a half, 20-pound and basically what you've done is you've now cemented that in place and completely isolated your well bore. And now you can go pick your perforations again and plug and perf every single section instead of just doing like a bullhead fracture down and you don't know which perfs it's going to go into. You know, the biggest ones are going to drink it and those aren't the ones you're worried about. That's not the rock you want to bust open. So, um, you know, that's a market that we see growing a lot, especially in the Eagleford as people come back in and retreat all these, wells from 2008 to 2015-ish, you know, 14-ish, somewhere in that window. Um, But typically a liner hanger was used, um, like say you set your intermediate casing, um, you know, seven and five eighths down to 8,000 feet. Okay. Um, Instead of running, you know, four and a half, you know, say you're drilling a a deep South Texas gas well to 14,000 feet. Yeah. Um, instead of running four and a half all the way to the surface, you've got to set an intermediate string somewhere, right? You know, to hold back some of those formations. And um, and so you say you set it at eight thousand feet. Then we're going to run four and a half all the way to the toe, and the liner hanger will be just inside of that seven and five eighths. Hmm. And um, so it'll hang off that that second string further down. And then it'll also most of the time have a packer component in it as well, right? To isolate the bottom of that seven and five wow. eighths from any formation that's out there. And wow. then you can cement through liner hangers as well um, and cement that string down in, in place wow. down the bottom. Um, wow. So that seems pretty cool. And that, yeah. uh, how does that go? Like it goes in like on collars and threads, like a, like Kate, like a, a yeah, you run it in on a drill string. Um, yep. And then, and then set it. Um, there's a couple of different, you know, ways to set them. Um, you know, you can pressure them up. Um, you can mechanically set them by rotating um, a couple of different ways. And you know, there, it, it depends on the formation you're in, um, in like in the Northern Delaware basin, they run a lot of them. Okay. Um, historically they ran a lot of them. I haven't been in them, you know, hadn't been there in three years now, but you know, they were running a lot of them up there. Um, seven by four and a half strings. Um, and, you know, I was thinking at one point up in Oklahoma, they were running a lot of seven by four and a half or seven and five eighths by five inch. I think we had seen a couple of times. 
Um, you know, and for whatever reason, this, this, uh, drilling engineer has designed this well bore in a specific way, right. You know, to, to contend with whatever formation he's going through. Yep. Um, the most common lately, you know, every, everybody's wanting to run five and a half long strings. And so they run a five and a half string from surface all the way down through their toe. And it's one continual production string. Wow. And, um, so you don't need a liner hanger that right hmm. it's just one one piece of casing from top to bottom holy cow just cement to surface yep holy cow that's right wow so, wow man yeah. right on dude. yeah that's, that's pretty cool so you got a lot of experience in the gas lift but now you've got your packers i mean you got all this other stuff that's in this in this wheelhouse that you got is that stuff that you learned along the way or those are partners that help you with that yeah so um gas lift and packers um were mine until i got to superior um you know were, were my focus um and my, and my love and um you know i really got fascinated with the artificial lift side um with gas lift um and you know just kind of the dynamics behind it right mm -hmm. and then i got bored with it um not because <laughs> i was an expert but because i knew i wasn't gonna be you know um I don't know, Winkler or somebody like that, that, you know, has published books on it or somebody like, you know, like Matt Young, super knowledgeable guy. And at this point it's like, look, I know enough to like be good at what I do. Mm -hmm. When I have like really off the wall questions, I really need to understand something like I'm calling Matt, you know, like he's, he's the expert. Wow. Right. And so, um, so I kind of got bored with that um, to some extent. And at Superior, we had so many different product lines. We were doing a lot of packers, um, and we were doing a lot of high-pressure packers um, hmm. for that for the Delaware Basin. Um, and so I got um, pretty deep into that technically um, and started getting into the, into the frack plug side. Um, but then when we started Tarpon, um, the partners were, um, are, Dale Barden is... Um, well, Dale and Eugene are both Halliburton guys. Oh, cool. And uh, Dale has a mechanical engineering degree. Oh, man. And wow. was an R&D engineer for Halliburton. Jeez. Um, designing completion tools and, and... Let's go. You know, all this fun yeah. stuff. And, uh, and you know, I'm, he's had a couple of roles there. I think he's been, you know, um, R&D for a while, um, technical engineer, you know, whatnot. But, um, yeah, so he had a lot of experience actually with the tools the designing, the manufacturing, you know, do we chain for this edge? Wow. Do we run this kind of set screw versus, you know, Jeez. brass shear screws on that or whatever it may be. And, um, that's a so, fantastic guy to have in the corner right there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then the, the third guy, Eugene, um, 20 years at Halliburton starting with, um, I'm trying to think if he start, started with frack or if he started with acid, but, he started um, down in Mission 20 years ago before any of this horizontal stuff wow. took off. You know, Mission, dude, Texas. Yeah. That's where my wife's from. Yeah. So there's a famous crew down there from Halliburton. Come that, on. That they like, man, they did all this. You know, in South Texas, there's a lot of deep, high pressure, very hot gas. <laughs> right? Yeah, I've seen it. And the, so, uh, like, that's, that was his life is, wow. down, is, there. Uh, is down there. You know, cement, acid frack um and eventually um he moved out of that into the completion tool world because he had been on so many locations and he's seen and understood so much of what's going on down hole yeah um they wanted him as uh 
to some extent, I want to say like the contingency guy, wow. you know, when something's not sure. quite going right, it's like, Hey, let's call you Gene, yeah. you know? Heck and, yeah. uh, and so I've learned, um, in the last three years, I've learned a tremendous amount from, from those partners, um, in the time we've, we've spent together. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've tried to, to move a little bit of my knowledge, but you know, I'm considerably younger than they are. I shouldn't say considerably as make Dale mad. Um, I'm a, I'm, I'm a decade younger than those guys are. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so, um, I feel like I've done a lot more soaking up knowledge, nice. um, you know, Dying. than anything in the, in the last, uh, in the last couple of years. So Man. it's been, it's been good. It's been fun. Right on. Um, Let's roll this into the completion part of the show then. Where do you cool. see your operating company going? Where do you see you going just personally and, and tarpon? Like, how do you see your next five to 10 years? Like, what are you focusing on? Yeah. Uh, and then let's talk about 30, 40 years down the line. You know, where do you see the future of energy kind yeah. of uh, concepts? So, um, well, I guess let's start with tarpon. Tarpon has spent a lot of time um, developing... Uh, new ideas. Nice. Uh, we don't have a huge R and D budget, but being the dreamer and Dale having like the technical side Eugene, of it yeah. and, and Eugene being like, nah, bro, like <laughs> hold up, you know? And, and, and so I'm the dreamer and, and Dale's like, yeah, maybe I can make that happen. And he always gets mad at me because I'm always like, Hey, so, uh, we're going to do this. And he's like, no, we're not. And I'm like, no, you need to figure out how we're going to do this. And, uh, and Eugene kind of ends team. up being the mediator a lot of times. He's the manager, but, huh? But, um, no, but Eugene's like the technician. Dale's the manager. Yeah. The visionary. Yeah. Right. That's right. All That's right. right. And, uh, so we've developed a, um, a ESP catcher, that's also a packer that's fit for it's, it's fit for purpose. And so what we saw in, um, the Midland, the Delaware Basin, is a lot of people are running ESPs. Electronic submersible pump. Yes, yes. Um, to move high fluid volumes. Does right? that sit in the horizontal or in the curve? It sits in the vertical section. Oh, it's at the vertical section. And so this is key that they want it to go into the vert- vertical section because an ESP could be 200, 250 feet long, right? Um, and it's spinning this pump. And if you get into that that curve into your your build section then it starts to put stress on there so they want to hang it off in the vertical okay um but then if you part pipe somewhere you've then you drop this piece down to your horizontal it gets lodged in there it gets stuck because it can't make that curve right and um and so you get really expensive fishing jobs so a number of years ago you know five six years ago people started running large bore frack plugs um, in the well as kind of a choke. So um, it couldn't drop. So that it wouldn't drop any further than where that frag plug was. And they started labeling, they label them as an ESP catcher. It's a, yeah, it's, um, it's like, think of it like a frag plug with like a minimal well bore restriction. So they want to let as much fluid through the middle as possible. So it ends up being okay. real thin okay. on the edges okay. and it's not holding any pressure, so to speak. Okay. Um, it's just a, a restriction in the idea of your well bore. So, um, we saw a lot of guys start to run these and, um, we started seeing problems with them. You know, I had one customer that dropped seven ESPs in six months, mm. six of them didn't catch. Mm. And so we were like, Oh, this is an issue. We need to develop something like this. Well, I, I went on a duck hunt 
with an engineer out of Midland, uh, a young engineer from Louisiana. Nice. And um, his wife and, and my wife and I went on a duck hunt um, fall of 20. We had just started tarping. And I was like, man, what's your biggest frustration? He's like, well, you know, we're running Aeroset packers, AS1X packers, as catch packers for these ESPs. But they, you know, they're long. They don't go into the curve very well. You know, they're hard to get out after you've been producing through them for two or three years. Um, and then if you do have to go fish one, you know, it's hard to mill over that packer. So there's all these issues. Sheesh. And when I started looking around, there was no fit for purpose tool for what these guys are trying to achieve. They're just kind of like they're taking it together with different stuff. And the old field's notorious for this, right? It's like, well, shoot, we've been doing it for a hundred years. Somebody's got to have a good tool for this. Let's just go grab this and use it in this application. Wow. And I was not saying we always need to reinvent the wheel. Sure. But uh, it got me to, to spinning and dreaming, and uh, I drew something up on a bar napkin, and I was like, Dale, can you build it? And um, so we've, we've um, run a, a fair quantity of them. Um, and, you know, I say all that to say that, you know, I think Tarpon's going to continue going in that specialty direction. Okay. There's so many guys that provide gas lift. There's sure. so many guys that provide packers. Yep. And, you know, like... A lot of these things are commoditized and um and you always want to say it's your people that do you know oh, but there's yeah. a lot of good people at a lot of these companies yep right and yep. and like i shouted out to matt young earlier at floco like he's he's good yeah I, I, it's hard to compete with, with him because yeah. the dude's freaking good yeah you know so like yeah. at some point you have to realize that like if i'm going to compete in that market i've got to do something different than what i'm doing well we've started saying like all right when you have something different special off the wall you know five inch 18 pound casing you can't find a packer for you call us and we have a network that we've developed and we get into our network instead of you as the operator calling Everybody. five dozen tool yeah. shops you yeah. call me and i'm gonna spend the next two or three hours tracking down what you need right on and um yeah that is unique so i see tarpon you know continuing kind of with that specialty way and right really on. trying to carve out our niche as as not only can we provide the things that are commoditized? And we want to still provide those to our customers, right? But really, also, you know that, um, you know, we're there for all of it, for mm -hmm. the hard ones and for the easy ones. Um, and we build that relationship. And how are you telling the story? How are you getting, like, like, your marketing out there? How do people know about you? How do they know that Eugene and Dale and, like, how do they know these guys? How do they know what they're getting? How do you do that? Uh, well, I guess here. Uh, you <laughs> yeah, know, I haven't, good. we haven't been uh, great about being intentional to get that story out. Right. And, and we've also focused a lot on small operators, you know, South Texas, East Texas, trying to maintain the relationships I've had in West Texas um, sure. and whatnot. But, you know, when, when things are good, um, we ran, we ran a bunch of frack plugs for big operator, world renowned operator in South Texas. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we ran 1,800 of them without an issue. Ooh. We had two of them fail back-to-back yeah. -back in the same well bore. And what was really frustrating was, you know, and there's some other, like, little circumstances in there about pump-down rates and things like that. But they were like, hey, can we pause and y'all figure out what's wrong with your plug? And we're going to use somebody else in the meantime. And it's like, it's hard with those big operators, if you're not a big operator, to absorb a blow like that. Halliburton have been like, yeah, well, you know, they probably wouldn't have changed anything. But <laughs> Halliburton could have been like, yeah, we can change that, you know, and get back to you on yeah. it. Um, 
for us, that's hard. So, so we've really put a lot of focus into, we want the relationships with the small operators so they know we're there 24 seven, get them what they need. And when things are good, you know, we're all making money. When things are bad, we're all still going to try to figure out how to make money. Me, you, and all of us together. Cause we know you have costs. We have costs. Like let's take care of each other. Yep. Um, and so, um, that's been a lot of our focus and I guess maybe through that, we haven't really tried to get into as much of the, you know, big commercial space with the, you yeah. know, the shells and the, the yeah. EOGs and the Devons of the yeah. world. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that's what marketing is for. Effective marketing will, will do that. Yeah. But I think effective marketing is also just, uh, it's, it's a reminder of the network you have built right and these relationships you have and these trusted people that you have in your in your uh rolodex that it's it's a reminder that of of who you are and what you are you know it's a great way to do that and Mm -hmm. have a a website that has a landing page that allows you to effectively communicate that and and people are like yeah i remember eugene's like that or dale's (laughs) you know like it's it's something to me it's it's more about that um Mm -hmm. you know for a company like yours so that's that's great, man. That sounds really, really cool. It's definitely really interesting. Uh, what a position you're in. You yeah. know, how old are you? I'm 29. Man, 29 <laughs> years old in a very, uh, you know, legitimate role and, uh, you know, smart guy, hardworking. Like, it's exciting, man. That's, that's, a, that's a really cool uh, story that you got us to. Where do you think uh, 20 years, 30 years? You know, what are, yeah. what are you thinking? I'd really like to build my operating company because I don't see... In any way, shape, or form, I don't see oil and gas going away. I see a lot of these other energy um, pieces coming into play, you know, and I forget who, somebody says it all the time, you know, I'm not um, against renewable energy, I'm pro all energy. Maybe it's Alex Epstein, um, but, you know. Oh, yeah, the uh, uh, the moral case for fossil yeah. fuels, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, I think he's the one that says that. But really, you know, even if we like flatline what the world needs in oil, which I don't even see that happening. No. Um, we just make so much from it, right? It has enriched our life in so many ways. And so in 20, 30 years, we're still going to need to be producing it. And I enjoy it. I, I enjoy everything about it. Um, you know, and, and I'm getting into this geology thing too. I've been thinking so much about geothermal and what that looks like right and on. how we can use our downhole expertise to, to help that transition and that form of energy become, you know, more prevalent. Right. And, and, um, certainly in your neck of the woods too, it's hot down there. It's hot in South Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, On and, and below the ground, above right. and below. Yeah. Geothermal. <laughs> if I, if I remember their map correctly, South Texas along the, the coast and stuff yep. is some of the hottest subsurface temperatures we have in the state. Yeah. I remember yeah. It gets hotter. Correctly. The closer you go, that, that gradient gets higher. Right on. Um, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good, man. That's a good outlook. I think it's a very realistic one. You know, there'll definitely be ups and downs. I mean, that's just, yeah. if, if you, you were born into that in 2015. You know, you know exactly what that is. Yeah. The, uh, the ability to be an operator and make more, more oil than you use. And I, I say that even though I'm only at a couple barrels a day right now, you know, <laughs> working my way up, it's like, it actually doesn't take much to make more energy than you use. Yeah. And you know, this whole concept and the whole argument of fossil fuels, which is a totally incorrect term. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not 
it shouldn't be used. It it makes the argument circular, and but nobody wants to know that. Nobody wants to sit there. Everyone wants to sit there and argue about just kind of some bullshit, mm -hmm. in my opinion, when it comes to that subject. And I'm not calling out anybody, but I, that's how I feel. And so I don't engage in that whole thing because they just the whole premise of it is 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 not right and the foundation needs to be reworked the foundation mm -hmm. for, for all of us to have an, a, a real conversation about how what is the energy landscape over the next 20 30 years you can't go into it with a call with a a group of of energy called fossil fuel mm. that's not right in my opinion and if you don't agree with that then we'll never agree on how we're going to get through this but what we can agree on is how much energy do you actually produce as a human mm -hmm. versus how much you use. And think about your whole family. Yeah. Think about the generations you're, you're making. Are they using more energy than they make? That's a problem. Mm -hmm. That's a problem against sustainability. And if everyone's sitting and, and hooting and hollering about we need a sustainable future, but you're actually a leech yeah on the system on the system and on the energy <laughs> and you're not helping to make it in some way or another yep. provide tools provide services provide accounting provide do something especially mm -hmm. if, if you're in texas especially if you're in these states that have this unbelievable amount of efficient energy that we use yeah man get involved in that and that is that's how we can be sustainable yeah you know that's how we can really start talking about sustainability my opinion so i'm excited for the future i think we have a lot to discover still we have a lot to uncover yeah. uh it, it hasn't been the best hundred years for oil and gas <laughs> it just has there's been a lot of mistakes and we continue to make uh, major mistakes along the way and, and we gotta we gotta limit those we gotta get better yeah we definitely do this uh this event coming up what do you think what are you getting out of it what are you what are you looking forward to at the summer rocks 2023 um i'm i'm looking forward to just learning just being around people, having, having the conversation we've had today, like I fully anticipate while I'm there that somebody asks me a question and I go into something and they are like, oh, let me tell you something about that. And I'm like, come on, tell <laughs> yeah. me about it because I got all day. I've got something to learn. <laughs> and, um, well, you know, and, and looking at the Eagleford and the Austin chalk and like growing up, um, you know, my, uh, my great uncle has a big chunk of land that they've drilled a bunch on Wow! and uh, they've got a bunch of chalk wells on it. Yeah. And when the Eagleford first started popping off, you know, I hadn't even graduated high school yet. And I started hearing him say at family functions, well, yeah, we've known the Eagleford was there for 70 years. And, um, and so, you know, for me to go to the event and see what we've known for 70 years, but then see how we're applying it today and changing it and, and the technology that changes right to on. make that something that's actually useful is, you know, that's, that's cool because he was like, yeah, we always thought it was worthless, right. you know? And, uh, and so I'm like, yeah, we can take things that previously were, were worthless. We didn't have anyone, any, we that's didn't right. have anything we wanted to do anything with. And, that's uh, right. And so, and I really, I'm excited to see that outcropping. And one of the things I want to have some conversation about is, is, um, you know, gener I guess generation of oil and gas, right? Cause like the way I understand it is the Eagleford is like the source rock and the Austin chalk was just the sponge. And like, hmm. so if you know somebody that's a real particular expert on it, maybe you are, um, you know, at the event, I'd like to spend an hour with them right. and like hear about the actual um, 
building of, or, you know, the, the making of oil and gas that's down awesome, home, man. like that's how awesome. that's, how that's maturing, how that's coming about. Oh man, <laughs> this event's going to be good, dude. It's going to be good. There's going to be some serious questioning around all of that, especially the hydrocarbon generation aspect of the Eagleford. When did that happen? When did the rock actually deposit versus when did it make oil? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's a, that's a huge concept to unravel and start unpacking in one field trip. But yeah. <laughs> our intention, you know, we, we've, we're getting the data back. We're doing rocky valve paralysis on the rock. So we're seeing what the clays are. We're seeing what the elemental makeup of this rock is. And we're seeing this uh, hydrocarbon generation stuff, right? Mm-hmm. We're cooking it in a lab okay, and then capturing the hydrocarbon flares that come off of it in okay. the form of gas, alkane chains. And that tells us what's happening in the hydrocarbon story. Okay. How good, how efficient, one, how much carrageen is there? How much material is in the Eagleford in this area mm-hmm. to even make oil? Is it, is it a number that's commercial? And some of the data is coming back at 3% carrageen, you know, weight percent. And that's, that definitely gets your attention. All right, yeah. you got something there. So we're, we're running those details now. And then you see the S1 versus S2 peaks in this rock eval data, and that's when the, the hydrocarbons are burning off in the lab, right? Okay. The timing of that and relative to each other, and that's the hydrocarbon story from this particular generation of, of, uh, of Eagleford, mm-hmm. right? So how do you apply that now regionally? How do you better understand this hydrocarbon generator that is a reservoir now because we have the technology to drill into it, complete it, and we, we have the experience of what to use, what not to use to keep it open, keep it flowing. Like we've learned so much over yeah. these years. Well, now maybe we can get a lot more resolution on the, the actual timing of the generation, Okay. right? How can we optimize the, the wells now or this field now that we know a little bit more about how it's generated? Yeah. That's a, a fascinating subject. There's a ton of specifics, and there's you're not going to learn it all. Right. We're not going to you're not going <laughs> to just make a super major breakthrough. But the conversations that are going to be had on this outcrop are you going to uh, uh, golf? Oh yeah, right on. So you're definitely going to golf with a group of people that are going to be talking about it. You're going to hit the outcrop, and then we have a we have a surprise uh, after. Uh, that I'm not going to un- unveil on the show, all right. but there will be a geologic surprise uh, later in the day after we all see outcrop and get back into the into the room. And you're just going to hear a lot of conversations about this and these different approaches um, mm-hmm. to the geology. And and you, just like I am, and everybody else in that room is making a decision on who's who's maybe more right. No one's wrong, but mm-hmm. you know somebody's more right. Yeah. And what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, you need to figure that out. You need to just be open to that and, and see these conversations unfold. It's going to be badass. It's it's not like anything else. You're, you're going to see fireworks. Yeah. It's going to be cool. Cool. I'm super excited for it. And, right. uh, oh. and, it, and like you said, just build your network. And, and yeah. one, one thing you have in the oil field is your name. It follows you everywhere you go the yeah. rest of your life. And so, yeah. um, you know keeping that good and clean and getting, yeah. getting it out there so that people know who you are and, and uh, getting to know other people. And, you know, you might not need anything from them ever. Yeah. But um, having those resources there, if you do need something, makes all the difference. And uh, Big time. So, are you going to bring Eugene and Dale? I, I might try. Cool. I might try. Eugene's oh. not a big socialite, but... Is he a golfer? Oh, no. 
know. <laughs> no, not, <laughs> not a golfer all. either. Well, it'd be cool to look at some rocks. You know, yeah. it's not, not nothing crazy. Just look at some rocks. And then the uh, podcast we're bringing in, Alan Lazenby Jr., that guy's got a story. Okay. He crosses paths with Pablo Escobar, dude. Oh, cool. In Colombia. Very man. cool. <laughs> we're going to hear it. Well, I was minute. listening to the DeWitt Smith story. Yeah. And, uh, that was that was cool. That was fun to listen to that guy in South America and all, yeah. that, all that fun yeah. stuff. And, and then uh, the, the land grant, the Chama the land, land grant. grant. Golly. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, Dewitt's a character, man. He's he's good. He's got a really cool prospect that he's he's putting out there and put a bunch of time and effort into. Yeah. Um, he's got one in the Permian, so I do have a bone to pick with him on it, though. Uh. he's calling. Well, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't pick this bone. <laughs> All right. So, like me producing in Lavernia out of the Navarro. Uh huh. Some folks have told me that the almost mm-hmm. is the same as the Navarro. Huh. And that, like, there's different names for the same formation. So for, like, a young dude who doesn't really know anything, uh, like, trying huh. to put these characters together, when people go renaming stuff... That ain't all right. It's like, <laughs> I don't understand right. what we're talking about anymore, yeah. you know? And so yeah. it's... Uh, so you're saying when he... he if did, you put a new name, uh-huh. Eureka, on that reservoir, uh-huh. you know, for the uneducated, it's going to be confusing. That is confusing, yeah. Yep. It's yeah. basically the wolf bone, right? It's wolf, yeah. wolf camp and bone spring package there and and yeah he's calling it eureka no it's true it's true it's happened so much through geologic time uh like human geologic time like us studying the rocks and calling it something and then uh eventually someone else rolls in and starts calling another area that they didn't know was still wolf camp they just thought it was something new and all of a sudden they're calling it something else yeah and and all kinds of work has to be done to to (laughs) manage that and not let it unfold yeah but it we we haven't done a great job and and then the people who are doing the management and keeping trying to keep control of that they make mistakes too yeah and now all of a sudden you're digging back through historical documents of 70 years of geology 80 years of geology and you're right now figuring out that that's actually not this and it's actually that Mm -hmm. like and that's what's exciting about what we do it's exciting to be in oil and gas because the details haven't been at the level that it's capable of being in now. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the technology to allow us to see the hydrocarbon generation story in the level of details we can now see it in. Yeah. And then we can afford it, right? Yeah. We can actually do this. We just didn't have it. So it was, it's a sandstone, it's part of the Navarro, it's over this whole area, and it goes up to this fault, and you know, we knew that much, and we kind of controlled it by drilling one successful well every 10 wells, you know, and, right. and, and at least you got all the shapes, you know, you learned a lot about what's going on, but this is the only economic one. Well, yeah. why was that? You know, what's going on there? What, what, what's actually changed? And now you look at the elemental makeup of this stuff and it changes drastically. Hmm. And if you don't have the tools and the model to allow you to help with why it is relative to faulting and fracturing and where you are in the system, you're still kind of shooting in the dark. So, mm-hmm. so today, in my opinion, we, it's so exciting to have young geoscientists, the old geoscientists, and this in-between to to manage the next 20 30 years of discoveries like there's so much more detail data that we can get long before ever even drilling the well right long before ever taking that risk there's there's a lot of work that can be done to better understand it to optimize your your shallow oil field and have access to 34 drill holes 
mm-hmm. poked into this thing. Look at that data, and now you might be able to find a, a perfectly g- good location to infill drill or to just focus on not the, the wasted time and focus on developing the best part of this reservoir because you can see it in the data. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's helping us save time. You know, like that's how we grew up. Like we <laughs> were time, we're, we're a lot more time management, in my opinion, than my parents, right. for sure. And my parents, are, bless them, dude, they worked their ass out to give the opportunity to, to be that stubborn with my time, right? right? And I'm like, hold on, you're, you're 10 hours, 12 hours a day working, doing the same thing over and over, and you're only getting four hours to do what you really like, yeah. you know, or, and you sleep most of the week. And that's just on the weekends, right? Most of the week is just you work all day, yeah. eat, sleep, do it again. That's five days, right? 90% of your week. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, man, I'm, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do the work. Right. But I have a, a different consciousness. Right. I have a different view of the future that they never saw. Yeah. And that's but, just like our what kids. A, what a blessing to be passionate about something and being able to work into it, too, because like, yeah. like we're doing, I enjoy riding around and open my wells and jacking with stuff, you know, and like, it's dangerous sometimes. I think we're kind of a a unique generation where we're starting to be able to do that. We have the freedom and the opportunity to choose what we love and make a living at it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. That is very, very true. Very fortunate, man. Very Mm -hmm. fortunate to be where we're at and doing what we do and then have the the network man this south texas geologic society the society petroleum evaluation engineers and spe itself right Mm -hmm. have that support at this event have those people coming you got three different worlds colliding in one industry they never really talk to each other you know even in their own companies you're not the cfo evaluation people are not business development they're kind of understanding geology they definitely have a more relationship with engineers we're bringing all three of these together at this event to talk about technologies that are that are working today. You're going to get a kick out of We're hoping to get a sponsor on them. I think I, I got it closed. A buddy of mine okay. who runs a really interesting recompletion technology. Okay. And it's going to fit right into the story of your Eagleford stuff and cool. all that. And he's got these amazing results, right? Very simple concepts, but he went out there and grinded it out. He created all this out of nothing, right? And, and put, up, put up a lot of big stories together through his network over time and created this company. They're out doing it and they're getting great results. Yeah. Like what a great story to have at this event for everyone to see. Why is the geology working that way? Why is nature responding to this? Recomplete mm-hmm. so well, and it seems to be repeatable. It doesn't matter if you're in what, what reservoir you're really in; it changes, but the results are repeatable. You're going to make more oil and gas, right? <laughs> like, great! Like that's what I want to do, right? He's right. He's, na- <laughs> he's nailed the bottom line. How it actually works, you know, geologically, that's interesting. Engineering-wise, well, what if you tweak it and you kind of do it like this? You know, all this experience is going to be in the room, listening to that that yeah. demo, right? And and what a great opportunity for us. It is. Get the, get the right people together that are really making a difference today and, and kicking it in the ass. Having the opportunity to kick it in the ass like we're doing. Yeah. Let's do it, man. Come on. <laughs> All right. Tell me about this mustache before we get into the intro of this thing. Oh, man. Um, when I started the cattle company, uh, I started growing out. Uh, I guess I started growing out my goatee. Okay. And then one day I was just driving down the highway 
and I hadn't trimmed my, my mustache in a while, and like just the little edges, yeah, I started like pulling them to the side, and they were yeah. kind of like perking a little bit. <laughs> I sent a picture to my wife, and she's like, no. Yeah. Like, Absolutely not. Right? Yeah. You look and then, like uh, the, the, Well, I'm on, my, I'm on my second rendition of it because the first one, look, the first one, I was, uh, it was going pretty good, and I started trimming the top of my lip. Yeah. I trimmed a little too much. <laughs> and uh, so then I had to, like, trim a little bit over here, and I pulled it out, and uh, I walked in the office, and Dale is from Kingsville. Um, <laughs> and Dale goes, Reed. I don't care how many cows you own, you'll never be T.O. Clayberg. And I said, what the heck does that mean? You know, and I don't know how many people are familiar with the King Ranch, but, you know, T.O. is uh, like, he's a man when it comes okay. to running a big ranch and knowing about cattle. And, and uh, he's, he's always had, you know, a pretty good-sized mustache. And I said, son of a gun, you know. And, and uh, so I cut it off that day. Okay. Well, and then I got lazy somewhere maybe November of last year. Uh, we weren't doing a whole lot. I didn't have a whole lot of meetings set up coming into the holidays. You know, uh -huh. sales kind of slows down. I'm just on location. So um, I started growing it out again. And uh, and since then, it's just been it's been doing well this year. So I'm like almost there where I've got the inside <laughs> stuff where it starts tying into tying the wax. In. <laughs> because, you know, for a while, you're just chewing on it all the time. And uh, anyway, it's 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 also high maintenance yeah way more high maintenance than i'm used to <laughs> and so um i debate with myself multiple times a day about whacking it all off yeah so wow. <laughs> damn it it's uh it's definitely rememberable like a memorable right yeah. yeah you definitely uh you're coming in hot with that mustache uh well man I've, I've really enjoyed this i feel like we can do a podcast again and i think we will sometime in the future and just catch up again on tarpon and just geology right your next level of yeah, being becoming a a, a, a geologist, you know, it's it, maybe not degreed, but you, you're questioning and you're thinking about it, and you're going to start tying in tectonics and the timelines, and mm -hmm. I mean that's what geologists do. You're learning that stuff, so I'm excited to kind of do another show where I can see the growth in that and and get yeah. to the next level of your understanding of the rocks and how this thing's put itself together. Yeah, because uh, it is tricky. The story is not told. The story is not completely understood. Uh, we, we are understanding it for sure. Um, and so that's what we get to do. Uh, I enjoyed the shit out of this show, man. Yeah. Thanks for your time. It's been fun. Heck yeah. It was great meeting you. Awesome. Thanks, Troy.